was that? That kind of sounded like the replacements at one point. I couldn't figure it out. The Misfits? Oh, Jesus. Wow. Sometimes I just can't put my finger on certain bands. You're welcome, Neil. If this goes out, I'm holding the cord into my iPod so it doesn't fall off. <laughs> million dollars worth of equipment here. You have to hold the cord into an iPod. This is hell. And this week, we've got bad news about new atheism. It's back. We'll have a live report from Puerto Rico, which is reeling from yet another disaster, a three-week run of the production Hamilton. We'll also have a live report from France, where the Yellow Vests are performing Act 10 of their movement right now, as I speak. Then we'll learn how our faith in progress is... Not only unfounded, but dangerous and, from jump, racist. And we'll talk about robot sex and what it reveals about human beings being human. All that plus a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. In my search for show topics while suffering from a bad back during a polar vortex has led me to some very strange and previously unknown places. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell This Week's Live Four-hour show is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM, streaming live right now and podcast in its entirety shortly after at thisishell.com, as well as broadcast in abbreviated one-hour forms on Chicago's Southside Lumpin' Radio and Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, on Sunday mornings. During this week's hell, remember New Atheism and those nuts like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Bill Maher who were all anti-war and in stark opposition to the military-industrial complex? But immediately following 9-11, they wanted to go to war with anything and anyone they linked to religious fundamentalism, but especially when that fundamentalism was Muslim. You don't remember New Atheism? Lucky you. Problem is, you can't toss that garbage into the dustbin of history because... Unfortunately, New Atheism is back, and we'll talk about what that means when we have the return of writer Jacob Hamburger, author of the Point Magazine article, that was, or sorry, What Was New Atheism, which can be found at thepointmag.com. Jacob is a writer and co-editor at Tocqueville 21, a Franco-American blog on contemporary democracy. After some rotten history, we start the second hour with more discussion on the musical Hamilton, than you've ever heard on This Is Hell, or more discussion on any musical than you've ever heard on This Is Hell. And that's because I hate all musicals. So I want to apologize, but because I hate, I loathe musicals, I will enjoy our live report from our correspondent in Puerto Rico, Dave Buchan. Apparently, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is of Puerto Rican descent, brought his musical Hamilton back to Puerto Rico to raise money for local artists and art groups. Problem was that local artists and art groups are not necessarily the priority in a nation where hundreds of public schools have been closed. And those closings are a result of austerity measures that are being imposed on Puerto Ricans by their government, which they not so affectionately call... La Junta. And guess who supports La Junta austerity measure as a response to Puerto Rico's bankruptcy that has profited the U.S. financial sector? That's right. Lin-Manuel Miranda. And guess who's 
sponsoring Hamilton's three-week run in Puerto Rico? Banco Popular, the island's primary bank whose role in Puerto Rico's $70 billion-plus debt has been questioned and is being investigated. We'll find out why Hamilton celebrates democracy but supports a junta when we hear from Dave Buchan, who has been living in Puerto Rico since the previous century. There, Dave uh, makes theater with Theater Ublek and El Teatro Barbaro and plays music with La Banda Municipal de Macula Baroon. After Dave will finally, I promise, finish up all the listener feedback still lingering from 2018, and we got to get to it this week because we've already received tons of correspondences from listeners this year, and they're starting to pile up in the email room, which has very limited space. Then it's off to Paris when we have the return of yet another guest live from Paris, journalist Cole Stangler, who wrote last week's Jacobin article, Back on the Offensive After a Steady Decline in Turnout. France's Yellow Vest movement is on the rise again. Emmanuel Macron's call for a great national debate lies dead in the water. Over the holidays, fewer and fewer protesters were showing up at Gilets Jaunes, that's French for Yellow Vest, movement actions, and a lot of commentators, media types, were thinking the whole thing was done. Macron's reneging on a proposed fuel tax that would unfairly affect the middle class and poor after giving tax cuts to the rich seemed to stop the movement's momentum. Then the holidays ended and the Gilets Jaunes were back in the streets disrupting traffic, only to win even more concessions from the Macron government, which is looking more and more shaky every day. We'll find out what the Yellow Vests want now and what they've won and if those can become real victories when we hear from Cole, who is a former staff writer at International Business Times, and in these times. Following Cole, we'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media, and when you think Alex and social media, I'm certain your mind races to our third hour's topic of this week's This Is Hell. Our unfounded faith in progress that has doomed us all. Our guest will be author Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote the article After the Storm, Progress and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity, which appears in Baffler number 43. Our faith in progress and belief that Europe is the apex of human civilization has, dis- has destroyed greater civilizations, led to a sense of moral superiority that has rationalized racism, slavery, and genocide, and has always been nothing more than a program of colonial dominance. That's how bad it gets when you believe that humans will always move forward and advance with progress until we solve all life's problems and mysteries. We'll discover a whole new way of looking at history and why we look at history in the wrong-headed way we do when we converse with Ben, who is the author of the novels Ether and The Suitors. Ben's latest nonfiction book is 2017's The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. Once Ben Ehrenreich destroys our faith in progress, we'll ask the question from hell and read all your responses. Then in our final hour of this week's This is Hell, robot sex, or sex with robots, or any combination of sex and robots. Discussing robot sex is no more than a salacious attempt to grab eyes, get views, and lure innocent passers-by into some sort of clickbait purgatory. But talking robot sex can also reveal a lot about what it means to be human. To make robots, you have to study how humans do things. And in that investigation, robotic scientists discover all sorts of stuff they didn't know about humans. With the integration of robots and artificial intelligence already here and huge advances being made in sex robots, new philosophical questions are being considered, like, is having sex with a robot cheating on your spouse? What impact will robot sex have on human relations in general? 
Unbelievably, there are myriad questions that arise when discussing the implications of robot sex, and we'll explore as many as we can when we learn all about robot sex from writer and academic Kate Devlin, author of Turned On, Science, Sex, and Robots. And during a moment of truth, Jeff shares his ode to the farmer, which is really weird because Jeff and I never discuss what our monologues are going to be about and mine also has something to do with farming, so maybe it's because we had Olivia Heffernan on last week to ask why we don't have labor-friendly labels on food at grocery stores. Anyway, it's Agricultural Bookends on this week's This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Hey, I uh, really enjoyed doing all the write-ups for last week's show where we talked about uh, grief at the end of uh, our lives and the end of wilderness, and then also why post-capitalism will be worse than capitalism. Um, not related to this at all, do you think getting yourself debilitatingly high and eating half a pizza almost unconsciously in 35 minutes has anything to do with global warming? <laughs> it has everything to do with global warming. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. In fact, I think the major cause of climate change is Little Caesars. Uh, this week's hangover cure is having a kid or two. <laughs> In an article that was published last week with a headline that everyone should hate, how Esquire editors get over a hangover. <laughs> Esquire's website director, Michael Sebastian, writes, having a kid or two isn't so much a one-time cure as it is a long-term solution to hangovers. Kids don't care if you've had too much to drink the night before. They are unrelenting whether you've had eight solid hours of sleep or eight martinis. Imagine a hangover. Now imagine laying on your couch trying to force your headache to go away while a toddler jumps on your testicles. That's not a metaphor for the pain that actually happens. So you learn to cut yourself off from drinking at a certain point, or you simply do not allow yourself to be hung over. This requires sheer will, plus some combination of other cures. A run will help a light to medium strength hangover, so will a Bloody Mary or three, but you do whatever it takes to muscle through. Once you're done, you're probably going to need to drink anyway. So that makes this week's hangover cure having a kid or two. How about that, Alex? Is that true? Is that a hangover cure for you? You have a kid? Uh, I, don't, I only ever have two beers at Carrie's Lounge and then leave. I, never, I haven't been drunk since, like, 2003. I have uh, not had a hangover, I don't think, in eight, maybe ten years. It's been a really long time since I have, have, I've had a hangover. What are we doing with all these hangover cures on the radio, then? I, I know. It's kind of <laughs> weird. I have no idea. I, I, I just thought about it the other day. I was like, man, it's been a really long time since I've been hungover. I don't know if that's a good sign or not, because I do drink. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. We're often asked where we get our guest and topic ideas for each of our broadcasts of This Is Hell. What explains, for instance, that so far this year and only two shows prior to today's, we've talked about everything from Trump's horrific climate change plan to Hungary's slave law to the whiteness of the U.S. news media to sex worker rights to global disruptions over global warming to the social crisis of Trumpism and the crisis Trumpism has made worse in Venezuela, to the lack of U.S. farm worker rights, to helping our dying planet by grieving for it now before it's too late, to the prospect that post-capitalism might be even worse than the current hellish variety of capitalism we're already experiencing. Where do we get these story ideas that seem to be all over the place? Well, we get lots of excellent suggestions from you our listening audience, and I'll be sharing these suggestions in the next hour during listener feedback. 
Most of our interviews are on subjects and with people who, for whatever reason, myself or Alex has stumbled upon online. My goal is to not only have guests on who can help me better understand issues that interest me, but I also want to talk to people whose content isn't being covered in the media or whose perspective isn't being represented or their voice is sadly not being heard or at least to the extent that it should be. To find the uncovered, you have to uncover a lot of the media's dusty carpets where underneath you can find all the news that's been swept out of sight, all the news that challenges the news media's profiteering nationalist narratives that buttress their bottom lines. I mean, you gotta go deep, and you better be wearing one of those surgical masks, if not a ventilator, when you're digging that deep because some noxious, life-threatening particles and fumes are going to inevitably get stirred up and will get up in your face and potentially deep into your lungs, inhale to scar everything from your heart to your soul. That's how ugly some of the stuff I come across while researching potential guests for our show truly is. This deep dive into uncovered news has opened up a weird world to me. It's made me interested in the oddly offbeat, and I don't mean dark web Reddit world of weirdness, but the real weirdness that's happening all around us, not the imagined stuff. At least it's weirdness to me because it's about other lives that I am not experiencing. Discussing climate change on our show has led to conversations about whether the answer is for all of us to buy a chicken, move back to the land, and become wind-powered subsistence farmers, which has led me to reading and seeing more about farming. And there's this Square Than Square show tucked away on some local TV channel Sunday mornings, I I think, called America's Heartland. In it, the host, who appears to be a salesman for the worst of big agriculture, does these homey stories about different farms and how they are farmed and by whom. One fascinating episode followed a farming family from dawn to dusk, revealing how everyone in the family, mom, dad, their daughter, and two sons, get up before dawn to do their chores, including herding and feeding livestock. Then they have breakfast. Then they go to school, which is 25 miles away, and their three kids are three of the four that makes up the school's entire enrollment. Then they have to go home, do their homework, and do more farming chores prior to having dinner around 9 p.m. and then relaxing for maybe an hour before, I assume, falling unconscious. At some point, the TV show's reporter asks the farm mom if she ever has any me time, to which the farm mom laughs. The clueless reporter then pursues her stupid line of -of out-of-touch questioning with this inquiry to farm mom. What about going to the spa? Farm mom smiles politely and partly embarrassed and says she's heard of spas but had never seen one. However, she thinks it's probably a lot like going down to the creek and letting the mud slip through her toes. It was an amazing profile. It it not only revealed the cluelessness of people in the media, it made me never want to ever move back to the land. Then last week, we talked to journalist Olivia Heffernan, and in her writing, she points out how the farm worker, who does not have the rights guaranteed that all other workers have guaranteed, is often erased from our portrayals of the family farm, which we equate with being a good farm, being run by good people who are American heroes. Sure enough, in the segment I just described on America's Heartland, no other farm worker but the five family members was ever shown And these people farm tens of thousands of acres of produce and livestock. So you know it's not just the five of them running the farm. 
Reading about climate change in particular as a topic for the show can lead me down depressing rabbit holes like the state of farming today, and it can really get under my skin. The looming, abrupt change we're about to face that will be devastating to human life can really get you down. So it is no wonder that the U.S. mainstream news media ignores it as much as they do. But they're not covering climate change and all of its aspects, which means I have to. Without understanding climate change, President Trump this week tweeted that somehow the polar vortex that we suffered through here in Chicago was proof that there is no climate change again. Not understanding that climate change leads to more water in the air, that leads to cooler temperatures, more precipitation, more extreme weather, and and contributes to the existence of things like the polar vortex. During that polar vortex, I suffered mostly from the white person problem of the less-than-minimum-wage newspaper carrier not delivering the New York Times to my doorstep for two days this week. Yes, I get a newspaper delivered to my home every day because, well, I have a grudge against trees. But more so, I don't want some algorithm to determine what news gets put in front of my face. I want to find news that my face usually doesn't confront. That's how I find the uncovered topics and guests we have on This Is Hell. By not falling prey to what some search engine knows I really want to see. But without the New York Times, I had one less random way to find uncharted news. I didn't have the newspaper to read. At the office, without the times, I also didn't have any reading material for the bathroom. And if you think you can bring some electronic device like a smartphone or a tablet into the bathroom and then bring it out without immediately throwing it into the garbage or some hazmat box, I find you disgusting. Every electronic device that ever goes into any bathroom stays in the bathroom until you want to throw it away. The clock radio in my bathroom, it went right from the store to the bathroom, and when we don't need it anymore, it's going directly into the trash or recycling or whatever, because I'm not a freaking animal who carries electronic devices around that have some thin layer of invisible feculent film. But this lack of access to the New York Times newspaper led me down into a scarier rabbit hole, a hole that has a rabbit with lots of guns, knives, homemade tools, and advice on how to load your own ammo for our approaching doomsday because the only reading in the office bathroom while the New York Times was being stopped by the polar vortex was an issue of American frontiersmen want to prepare for the disaster that is climate change without being a dicky family farmer who is so mean to their farm workers that they make certain the farm workers are never seen in a film on how their farm works then you too can get away from it at all and all of them and be a prepper. In the magazine, there are ads for college degrees you can attain online that can turn into jobs you can work online so you can stay away from all contact with human civilization, except for being online, and still make a handsome living. Oh, here's a handy career when you're out in your shack in the woods fearing every and anyone who is anywhere in the vicinity. Gunsmithing. And when it comes to living off the land, there's articles on fur trapping, for skinning, for rinsing, for fleshing, for stretching, and turning your furs off of the animals. Makes sense. If you're going to kill and eat an animal to survive, you might as well use all its parts and wear it too, right? 
Man, vegans are going to hate abrupt climate change and post-capitalism. Uh, the magazine has lists of top traps and the five most important primitive tool, uh, primitive weapons you'll need as we head toward our climatic apocalypse, including the classic club. There's even a story on how you can help your kids' path to adulthood by teaching them how to use a knife with handy tips like, I will cut away from my body, not toward it, so you don't cut off any of your handy tips, I imagine. Look, I didn't say Mensa published American Frontiersmen or Mensa members are American Frontiersmen's uh, target audience, but cutting away from your body, that's a really good idea. No, this week's dive into the uncovered doesn't mean we're going to have a family farmer on to over-exaggerate the idea that family farmer means a farmer who is good to their farm workers. No, I'm not going to ask Alex to book some mountaintop living prepper so we can interview them on their crappy flip phone during a call that barely goes through. But always seeking out the stories and the people who are ignored by the mainstream media can be a fascinating journey, and we hope you continue that journey into weirdness. Weirdness. That journey into the literal unknown with us here on This Is Hell, after all. This week, we're talking about the return of that horrible new atheism movement, how Hamilton is pro-junta, that the yellow vests are still fighting for equality, why our faith in progress has led to our destruction, and robot sex, which yet again proves this is not the media, this is hell, and if you want to hear more monologues like that, only better. Find them at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's is about the very light and hilarious topic of how we're all going to eventually every one of us will unavoidably and inevitably drop dead. It's really funny. And a classic interview on the aughts exaggerated meth scourge and how some antidepressants are causing suicide. Again, you can find all that at patreon.com slash this is hell as well as over 150 other exclusive monologues by me and classic interviews that can be found Nowhere else online except for at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's question from hell is who will be the last American president? Who will be the last American president? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. The winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can also see by going to Office Hours. This is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, where we have all of our swag available. Again, the question from hell is, who will be the last American president? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, new atheism was a hit during the presidency of George W. Bush, and it's back under Trump. The musical Hamilton apparently supports Puerto Rico's junta. The yellow vests are far from done protesting the policies of French President Emmanuel Macron. Our faith and progress is based on racism and a destructive strategy of global dominance, robot sex, and what it reveals about human beings and being human. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares his ode to the farmer. All that plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast, The Question from Hell. We have listeners that we want to thank for sharing the show and supporting the show online and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is Hell. 
New atheism was all the rage in the early 2000s as a response to the evangelical menace that some saw prowling the halls of the White House as well as those terrorizing the West around the world. A fundamental hatred for all things religious pervaded the movement, which had deep political implications. Then it went away, only again to reappear in the age of Trump, here to guide us through the thinking behind, as well as the history and the return of new atheism, writer Jacob Hamburger. I can finally look up and talk yeah. at you. Thank you. How, how are you, Jacob? It's good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, writer Jacob Hamburger is author of the Point Magazine article, What Was New Atheism?, which can be found at the Point Mag. Jacob is a writer and co-editor of Tocqueville 21, a Franco-American blog on contemporary democracy, which you can find out more about at Tocqueville21.com. We have it linked at our website. Follow Jacob on Twitter at J.M. Hamburger. You write that by 2014, many Americans had forgotten about new atheism. For liberal Americans in the depths of the Bush years, the George W. Bush years, anti-religious bestsellers by Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens came as, for lack of a better word, a godsend with the Christian right in the White House and jihadist terrorism perceived to be a constant danger in the wake of 9-11. A vocal rationalist atheism appeared to many a natural and necessary counterweight. So was new atheism then both a spiritual movement and a political movement? Was it more than one or the other? I'd say it's probably more political than, than spiritual. Uh, you know, I, I, I got some comments after this piece that, you know, were sort of disagreeing with me on that a lot, from a lot of people who had been involved with the movement, you know, who were prominent figures who really did feel that there was something important to them about about the non-belief in God. But I think for, for a lot of people who f- saw these books and um, and it meant something to them. I think a lot of it had to do with politics. It was the sense that um, that uh, the people in power are uh, the, the people in power are these religious fanatics, and also I think a lot of people felt that there were there were these strange dark enemies out there that were also religious fanatics. And so I think hearing some kind hearing um, people speaking for rationalism and and science out there. Uh, gave a lot of people who who you know were were vaguely liberal some kind of comfort, and this was a, this was an idea that was easy for a lot of people to to latch onto. Was it? Were they reacting to religious fanaticism with? And I hate to use this phrase, but I'm I'm trying to with scientific fanaticism. I don't think necessarily. I, I think you know, I, I'm not. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. Not. I think you know that, that that's a common thing that you hear about new atheism, and I think. Um, for a lot of these figures that are attached, associated with it, I mean, you could you could maybe say that. I, you know, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett tried to start a movement at one point where uh, people who were atheists would call themselves brights and kind of uh, it was a term that it was a term that never caught on. Really, um, yeah, I'm so glad it did that, John. <laughs> I don't. I wonder if that movie, you know, that Netflix movie about the orc. Uh, Bright, oh yeah, I, won- I wonder if that was some weird Dawkins reference. <laughs> um, but. Uh, I I don't know things like that. You can maybe see it as a kind of uh, fanaticism. I, I I don't. I don't, I think it's kind of a it's a facile way to to put it, and I I don't think it's necessarily completely incorrect. But I think it's it's more of an of a feeling that uh, that your your belief that you are operating on the basis of science and reason is. It's a kind of it's an assurance that your politics are right, and it's assurance that you uh, that you're on the right side. It's a it's a foundation for your belief. I wouldn't say it's a fanaticism because I I don't think you know I think that you know the athe- you know people who speak in this vein are right that you don't see people usually going and you know 
committing you know grand acts of passion out of out of an atheist conviction in the same way that some you know fundamentalist religious people might um but but i do think it's the, this notion of science reason and atheism um it was kind of it was a buttress for a lot of beliefs and that that uh that uh it, you might even call it an identity you write that uh, but in 2014, after nearly six years of Barack Obama's presidency, Bush and his born-again gang were far from the high seats of power. The war on terror was no longer a feature of most people's daily lives, and there was a widespread uh, impression of leftward progress on social issues. The services of the anti-religious crusaders were no longer needed. So to what extent did new atheism then defeat? the religious right after defeating the religious right was it just so worn out that it had become obsolete you know i I don't want to say that new atheism defeated the religious right what what i what i wanted to highlight was the the fact that i think the these new atheist books and you know the couple of celebrities that emerged there and and um this current of ideas kind of brought together um a number of different tendencies on the the liberal side of american politics on the democratic party or of you know left leaning voters, however you want to put it, and um, I think it helped um, solidify or express a lot of the opposition to George W. Bush, and um, but also to it, kind of where liber- liberals were at at the moment. It it was a way of saying, for for example, that you know we're not we're not soft on terrorism, we're not soft on these you know these jihadist fundamentalists out there. We are concerned about atheism, but. Uh, about about sorry the the dangers of of religion in the world, but we also are opposed to the dangers of the people leading this war on terror. Uh, the Christian fundamentalists that see you know in the invasion of Iraq as a kind of n- a new crusade. So I think it helped bring together people you know moderate liberals who maybe were not strong anti-war activists, but who were strong anti-Bush. You know had these had these strong feelings against George w., George W. Bush, and it it atheism was a way that kind of made it possible to be uh, part of maybe the anti-war left and, you know, vote for the same party as the people who, you know, the all the Democrats that actually did vote for the war and who gave Bush a rubber stamp on, on all of these projects in the, in the Middle East. So I think new atheism kind of fused in a lot of ways with anti-Bushism. And I think it's not surprising then that once Bush is out of, out of office and you have a charismatic... Um, inspiring politician, Barack Obama, who gets elected into power, that a, a lot of the impetus that made new atheism popular and that gave it a political role um, was suddenly less, a lot less relevant as, Obama, as Obama's presidency went along. How, how much then is new atheism, new centrism or a re-entrenching of centrism? Because a lot of what you describe as being the beliefs of new atheists seem to be the uh, beliefs today of more mainstream Democratic Party, especially hawkish, centrist Democratic Party members. So how much is new atheism uh, a reinforcement of centrism? Well, I, I think that that's, that's one way of, of summarizing what I wrote in this piece. Um, I think a lot of people in the last couple of years have wanted to look at new atheism and its and its connection to the far right, uh, to to the alt right, let's say, and I think those connections are definitely there. You look at a lot of people online that have uh, gravitated towards the alt right, and there's a lot of overlap with kind of Sam Harris message boards or uh, the Reddit r slash atheism page, um, and so th- th- there's an overlap. I'd say it's probably you know the fairest to you know new atheism 
would be to say that it's kind of an overlap with the alt-light. I don't know if there's necessarily a huge overlap with all of the extreme white nationalists and, um, you know, and white supremacists and things like that. I mean, there, there's, there's clearly some, but I think it's, it's mostly the kind of Milo Yiannopoulos kind of a trolling crowd, maybe where there's the most overlap. But what I wanted to focus on actually was the similarity between a lot of the new atheist ideas and their more now contemporary versions and, and centrist liberalism. Because I think what you see is once, you know, in, since the Obama years, um, I think there have been these different strands within liberalism, and I'm using liberalism in, in the, the broadest sense possible, in, which includes a lot of people that, that define themselves as leftists. There's been a, a big divergence, and, um, and I think the new, a lot of the new atheist ideas, the, this desire for a politics based in reason and ob- objective facts about the world and science um, has... Which, during the Bush years, you know, was not was not necessarily the conservative wing of liberalism. I think it was, you know, this was kind of a shared premise of a lot of people on the liberal side of things. Um, these sorts of ideas now are more attached to a kind of centrist liberalism that's kind of grasping for answers after the defeat of Hillary Clinton and wants to wants some kind of safety. Once and so science and, and these this new atheist conception of science, I think, serves as a kind of s- solid basis where a lot of people, liberals and leftists and progressives, socialists, you know, are moving in a different direction and they're looking for. I, I, it, it's hard to put everyone under the same boat, but I think what captures a lot of people on the activist left today is is is, is to say, you know, we don't want to just. We don't want to limit our politics to what is rational or objectively true. Not that we want to be objectively false, but but that we want we want a politics that will take on the people that need to be taken on, that will stand up for some ideas, and that will um, that will you know, not be afraid to take big political risks. At, you know, uh, uh, whereas I think a lot of centrists might be thinking on more similar lines to what you know things that new atheists have said over the years, because they're afraid of going in that kind of direction. So science or, uh, is, um, uh, is a way of, of kind of setting, one, setting a limit for oneself. I, I think you see, right, uh, since Ocasio-Cortez took office, there, there have been, uh, you know, occasionally she's been get, get uh, people who kind of don't like her politics have given her, you know, what the Washington Post calls Pinocchios. You know, she, she'll make some claim that we need to, to raise, raise the tax, uh, raise marginal taxes and you know, they'll say, oh, well, look, she said this thing that's not, that's not exactly correct. And, you know, this, this, this kind of fact-checking impulse, I think, is, is sort of related to the, the idea of objectivity uh, that we see with the New Atheists. And I want to talk about some of these divides that happen within the left, because I find these fascinating. You write how Christopher Hitchens broke with the American left, uh, shaped by the experience of Vietnam and the Cold War, uh, whose first instinct after the towers came down on 9-11 was to point out with... Uh, uh, still were critics of American power, such as Noam Chomsky, the culpability of U.S. foreign policy and the rise of organizations like Al-Qaeda. Uh, Chomsky resisted the urge to view 9-11 as an event without precedent, suggesting in an interview shortly after the attacks that Bill Clinton's bombing of the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical plant in Sudan, which uh, resulted in one casualty, might in fact have been morally worse. And I think Noam said that in an interview on our show four days after 9-11 as well, arguing the impact of losing the medicine created at the plant would have a greater impact on public health than 9-11 did or would. To what degree is any split we are still seeing today among 
the left, liberals within the Democratic Party, whatever you want to call it, to what degree is that still the lingering legacy of any split in thinking, any difference in the reaction or response to 9-11 on the left? That's a, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, I don't know if I have all the answers to that. I think part of what I wanted to show in kind of sketching out that history is that there's, there's kind of a rhetorical move or there's a, a stance that, that Hitchens, I think, helped solidify in those debates about foreign policy after 9-11. I don't want to totally re- relitigate this, this debate that Hitchens and Chomsky had because there's been enough said about that. And I think you could probably just go listen to Chomsky's interview with you and, and that, that might be enough to say. But um, I think what the, the stance that Hitchens took from those kinds of debates um, was that the left or some part of the left is too is blinded by its you know some kind of do-gooder instinct to you know to say that that um you know the people that attack america are you know to put them in context to look at america's role in the middle east but you know that the left has all these impulses to excuse that and hitchens belief there is you know we're dealing with fascists you can't be soft on these fascists and we have to we have to be hard and strong and he starts to use a rhetoric that actually sounds a lot like the right uh he actually says uh, that Chomsky and Tariq Ali and some other people in this kind of this anti-imperialist tradition are he actually calls them soft on crime, which is an interesting kind of uh, carryover from from some of the politics of the 1990s, conservative politics. Um, so I think, but the the idea basically that emerges with Hitchens is that the left, for whatever reason, is blinding itself to to the reality of the world we live in you know, with respect to fundamentalist Islam. And I think for the most, for the the history of new atheism that comes after that, um, it's really not, it it becomes less and less actually about foreign policy and and the interventions in the Middle East and and America's military state and all that. And I think there's kind of, you get a sort of abstracted version of that critique where people like Sam Harris start really developing, it's not like he invented it, but he developing a notion of political correctness that liberals are too sensitive to Muslims or whoever else to recognize this reality. And so he, uh, I I mentioned also in the piece, he ends up kind of going on Fox News a lot. He becomes a kind of, um, he gets picked up in the right-wing press, kind of the liberal who gets it on foreign policy, and they bring him on the show and and say, so Sam, you know, what, what are liberals missing about, you know, what are liberals too scared to say about, you know, the, the dangerous world we live in? And I think this this is kind of the the idea that he and some of these other people start start developing. And I think as as you get you know as you make this shift from this original initial period of new atheism in the early two thousands to today, a lot of the time it's today you're not we're not talking about foreign policy all that much at all really. But this idea that liberals are too uh, blinded by their you know their their egalitarian sentiments, or their you know they want to excuse bad behavior, or they want to they want to believe certain things about the world, and that blinds them to reality. And and I think that political correctness is the way of summarizing that. That's kind of the the move that these people make, and even now in a context where a lot of them aren't talking about nine eleven or foreign policy at all. 
I find it fascinating that, uh, and I found it fascinating the time that Hitchens was saying that um, the left was being soft on crime in the wake of 9-11, especially when there are many on the left who, like Noam Chomsky, are saying that we sh- this should be adjudicated like a crime, not like a war. And then the people on the right were saying, oh, are you going to parachute in attorneys with subpoenas instead of soldiers with guns? And they were making that kind of claim. So I've always found that fascinating mm-hmm. that Hitchens would say, oh, this you're soft on crime. Well, okay, so then adjudicate this like a crime. Um, so uh, you write that some on the left, however, like a former dissent editor, Michael Walzer, argued for doing more than criticizing American imperialism. Walzer and Chomsky both acknowledge the severity of U.S. misdeeds abroad, neither in the words of London Review of Books contributor Adam Schatz, had to ask the question, why do they hate us? From the perspective of those like Schatz, from the perspective of new atheists, what's wrong with asking why do they hate us in the wake of 9-11? Well, I think it's it's the, it's the same move that I just described earlier. I think asking... Um, um, why do they hate us is um, it's trying to well I think for Hitchens and 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 the the you know the emerging new atheists at that time it means something different than maybe the kind of the mainstream press commentators that are using in the in the news I think this this question was posed in the news as kind of a shock oh why why are there people in in Muslim you know majority countries that that are, are have reasons to be angry at the U.S. The, what what could possibly have contributed to that? So I think um, what Schatz was talking about in that quote is um, just saying that people like Chomsky and Walzer, you know, the you know the the majority of the intellectual left at that time, and Hitchens as well, right, didn't have to ask that question because they knew, you know, they they were aware of the history of of what America has done in in a number of these countries. Um, but I think Hitchens starts to see. I don't think I don't know necessarily that question in particular, but I think you could kind of read saying why do they hate us as trying to explain, you know, oh these people if they're if they're if they're attacking these fundamentalist groups if they're attacking our country if they're staging these kinds of terrorist attacks they must have some reason for it and you're trying to explain it. like uh, I think it's kind of what the French Prime Minister Emmanuel Valls said uh, years later that to seek to explain is to excuse. So I think again it goes back to this idea of political correctness that. Trying to explain and therefore excuse is it's only what you do if you are trying to run away from the reality of things, um, which is kind of paradoxical because you think if you're trying to explain things, you're trying to get at that reality. But uh, I think in this in this rhetoric of, of political correctness, it that gets flipped on his head. So uh, did did Hitchens change? Did he change? from the Kissinger-hating and Clinton-hating Hitchens that we loved into something else after 9-11? Or wasn't it Hitchens that changed, but everything around him? Did Hitchens change, or did the left? Um, well, Hitchens would clearly say that it was the left. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a... It's, you know, I kind of draw the parallel with a lot of people who have broken from the left and joined the right in, o- over history, uh, Whitaker Chambers and Irving Kristol and the like. And I think... What what all of these people say is I stayed the same and and the left went out of control and and there and and therefore you know I'm I'm just the same the same person I was. So I think Hitchens would say that I'm still talking about uh, you know Hitchens circa 2003. Let's say would say I'm still talking about international solidarity. I'm still talking about fighting fascism. Um, I'm still talking about good old leftist things like that. Um, 
At the same time, I think, and so, and you can, you know, people like, there's a biography of Hitchens by Richard Seymour who says, actually, kind of the seeds of this sort of pseudo-neocon turn were planted all the time. He always had this kind of fascination with people like Donald Rumsfeld, who were kind of these manly figures who were willing to do what it takes to, you know, with, um, in countries like Iraq. Um you know, I I think it's it's an open question. I don't think we have to necessarily decide, you know, personally for Hitchens um, how much of a break it was. But I, I think what's clear is that he he saw he thought that the left had gone too far, and so that's why he says, you know, I have a quote that I put in there. You know, there is no more radical left anymore. So he he thought, I think he saw himself as being true to those values, but he, he as far as he was concerned, there was no more left, and the only way to stay true to his values of, of being on the left was to to create some new kind of position. I think the, the only people that kind of are willing to join him in that are people who, uh, I think even if, you, even if you are not a fan of Hitchens, you can say he was a talented writer. So he kind of gets joined by people like Harris, who is a much, um, much less, um, how, to, how to put it, he's, a, he's not the same kind of literary talent as, as Hitchens, nor, uh, and he's, you know... Uh, calls himself a sort of philosopher. Um, and I think he, you know, some people say he bought a PhD in neuroscience. So, so I think Hitchens kind of tries to build a new kind of centrist position to, to fulfill what he sees as his leftist values with a lot of people who are just not intellectually, uh, or at least intellectually with respect to politics and ideology um, of any caliber to really, to really do so. And you also write about how new atheists were very critical of Hillary Clinton for not saying, not being more anti-Islam, not acknowledging the link between Islam and terrorism during her campaign. People like Sam Harris were mm -hmm. saying that. Was Sam Harris, do you think he was proven correct? Could Hillary have beaten Trump if prior to Election Day she had made a Islam leads to terror speech? Well, my my instinct is to say no, because I don't think very many people... Really, I mean, I think you have to have Harris's specific prism to see Hillary Clinton as this dovish figure. Um, I think most people probably associated her with a fairly aggressive for, uh, foreign policy position. Um, and I, I think even a lot of people who voted for Trump, um, you know, naively, but out of maybe a, a sincere belief that Trump would get us out of, you know, our military engagements in, in Iraq and Syria and places like that. Uh, I, I think that was in, in the 2016 election. I don't think Hillary was really seen and by a lot of people who were her, her opponents as being too soft on these things. I think, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to say Harris is completely wrong that some people who are on the right uh, see the Democrats in general as, as being soft on, on, on Islamic fundamentalism uh, or being soft on however many other you know, you know threats that are imagined to be out there. I think that is definitely a view that people on the right have. Um, I think Harris is saying, you know, in, in, in that piece that I quoted and that you just read, I think him, him circa 2016 thinks that there's this large portion of independent voters who also believes that and that Hillary Clinton could have won over by being more upfront about, you know, re-engaging in the war on terror. I, you know, you can, everyone can come to their own conclusion on that. I'm a little, I'm skeptical of it. Um, I think she was well known as a, as a hawkish figure and, uh, and that, you know, uh, 
adding more rhetoric about you know going after America's enemies, I don't think will 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 do much good. And I think you know to engage with that a little bit further, I think Trump, at the same time as he's saying we're going to pull our, ourselves out of these conflicts, is still you know, obviously very clearly is drumming up this very uh, is this uh, in, incredibly intense rhetoric against America's enemies, right? And which he is identifying actually not just with with you know ISIS members out abroad, but Muslims everywhere, including you know Muslim immigrants in the United States. And I don't think you know this is kind of a general point about you know the the left strategy versus the right in general. I don't know if it's really effective to say, oh well, if Trump is successful at getting a certain number of people riled up using that rhetoric, that we can do the same. So I'm generally skeptic- skeptical about that and about kind of Clinton's own kind of perception. Uh, Back, uh, back at that time. You write, ironically, the new atheist insistence that an authentic liberalism be scientific can lead to liberalisms no less, uh, or can lead to illiberalisms no less glaring than those they allege on the progressive left. How so? How does that take place? Well, so this is, I think, you know, this is the, I think some of the real substance of, of what I tried to get at here is that, uh, so what you see, right, with new atheism from the beginning and now in its new forms today and the, the form of new atheism that's kind of merged with what we call the intellectual dark web, this is the idea that liberalism, meaning everything from Hillary Clinton to through Bernie Sanders and further left than that um, in, in their mind, is um, has abandoned, you know, the liberal, real liberal principles, you know, um, individual rights, freedom of speech um, uh, and, 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 and so forth. And... I think what I tried to point out is that a lot of these these positions that people take in the name of being objective or being scientific actually lead to fairly profound breaks with liberal liberal very fundamental liberal um philosophical principles. So I think Sam Harris is someone who illustrates this better than almost anybody and he over the years has has kind of as he's kind of remade himself, you know, since since let's say 2014, 2015 he's taken a number of positions that are just flat out illiberal. Um, for example, one thing that I point out, he has advocated uh, in airports that um, using explicitly discriminatory screening policies that we, you know, we know from our objective beliefs in his, in, in his mind uh, that from objective research, we know that all of the potential bad people, you know, the, are, are Muslim. So we should just be out there, you know, looking for people who look Muslim because that's going to be a much more effective, um, effective technique. And he says, if we do anything else, that's politically correct. Um, it's, you know, catering to these politically correct ideas that everyone's okay. Um, but it's going to get people killed. Um, but, and so the point I tried to make is that even if we had perfect data, right, we had perfect scientific data telling us that he's right. And I, I, I shouldn't add that, he was not right, and he actually tried to go find terrorism experts. And the, o- and the only one that he could find willing to talk to him, uh, he brought him on his podcast, and this guy, or, or he maybe I think he had him respond to his post on his blog, something like that. And the guy, this guy, his name is Bruce Schneier, said, you're totally wrong. This is not, this is, this is not empirical <laughs> at all. Um, but even if, forget about that, even if we had data saying, no, nope, you're right, all the terrorists are Muslims, and they look like Muslims, they've got big beards, and you know, dr- you know come up with your, whatever stereotypical image you want. My point is that that's not liberal, right? Liberalism, I think, rests on this fundamental belief in individual equality. We treat each person as an individual. And I think anti-discrimination, treating each person as an individual and not 
making assumptions on them based on these on some other perceived traits uh, is fairly fundamental to what it means to be liberal. Uh, and in a lot of other contexts, the new atheists and the intellectual dark web people are all about this. But when it comes to something like this, it's oh no, it's political correctness. We can't we can't treat each person individually. Um, there's you know the other point that I think this is also Harris. I think. Uh, um, taking some of these scientific or objective, uh, quote unquote, ideas in in a very anti-liberal direction is is kind of his well-known uh, fascination with Charles Murray over the last year or so. Um, Murray, who is a, um, uh, I think he's he's I think he calls himself a political scientist. I'm what exactly his discipline is a sociologist, but who has written you know who has written done research suggesting that. Black people have lower IQs than white people, but that, that's that's Charles Murray. So Sam Harris, you know, comes comes to him, you know, and says, "Oh, you've been treated so unfairly by you know student protesters, um, just for you know stating the facts, uh, and we have to confront these these um, uh, uncomfortable truths that science is teaching us, and we can't be politically correct like all of these social justice warriors and and reject you know." not facing the facts of, of these things. And so again, the point here is even if we had reason to think that Charles Murray or other race scientists like this are correct, and they are not, but if we, even if even if they were, even if this were, this were good science, I think the liberal position would be to say, we don't care what race science tells us, and we are you know, we have to treat every single person as as an individual, and this science is just completely, you know, this this bunk science, even if it were right, is politically completely meaningless. From a liberal perspective. And you write about these core principles of liberalism, and you've already been talking about them today, uh, that new atheists like Sam Harris, Bill Maher, and the like uh, felt were under under threat by political correctness on college campuses. You write, as the philosopher John Gray has noted, many of today's college activists are not so much illiberal as hyper-liberal, acting on the ideology that aims to purge society of any trace of other views of the world besides ones based on individual choice. Are campus hyper-liberals fundamentalists, that is, intolerant of any other philosophy, desiring to purge society of all other ideologies? What does Gray mean by hyper-liberals? So I think what what, what Gray is saying is that, um, you know, I think it's, you know, we have to try to be careful about saying what exactly we mean by campus politics or, you know, what is called derisively social justice warrior politics. Um but I think what he's saying is, and I think there, there's 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 clearly a large amount of truth that that um, to, to thinking that there that there's a kind of politics that is very commonly seen among young people, and college campuses tend to encourage this kind of thinking. That's very that has a kind of moral purity to it. So I guess in that sense, you could say there's a kind of fundamentalism to it. Although I don't think it's necessarily an unhealthy one, but there's a there's a passionate belief in certain ideas, and I think what Gray is saying uh, is that the ideas that a lot of student activists who are engaging in what what is derisively called identity politics, let's say, is actually, I think, it's a very passionate take on on what is a liberal principle, namely that we're all each individual is free to determine who they are. So I think if you are very passionate about gender identity, um, you are are being are being liberal in that sense. And if you're very, very, very passionate about it and, you know, speaking on campus, maybe that that's what we can call hyper-liberal. But, you know, I think I think Gray maybe, you know, he indulges some of the critique of campus politics maybe more than I would, but I think he's correct in saying that 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 if, if you are a passionate 
supporter of of trans rights or you know ge- gender the fluidity of gender identity in general you're not being you're not as the new atheists and you know, their offspring would say you're not being uh kind of your mind is not being clouded by passion where you can't and you, to, so far that you reject the fundamental premises of liberalism no you're you're being liberal you are standing up at, for the the right of each person to say i'm going to be who i want to be and I don't need to listen to whatever gender categories, um, you know, tradition has imposed on me. And I think that's that's clearly a liberal position. But because of the kind of commitments that new atheists and their allies have made to, you know, anti- political correctness politics, they can't see that and they can't acknowledge that. So how, how do you see new atheism returning today and why would it be returning today? Well, to some extent, I, you know, the, the, the title of the piece is What Was New Atheism? And uh, just a couple of days after, actually, The Guardian ran a review um, of, a, of, a, of a collection of, uh, of, you know, a new book on new atheism. That was, and the, their title was What Happened to New Atheism? Uh, so I think, to some sense, what I'm trying to say is that new, I, I don't want to say new atheism is simply back. Because I think the conditions under which, you know, as we've talked about, new atheism emerged on, under Bush, are, they're very different today. But so what I want to say is that this what is back is one some of the same people, right? Mostly, you know, Sam Harris, Bill Maher, Richard Dawkins to some extent, although he is a little bit more on the sidelines than maybe he once was. Uh, but so some of these people who have been associated with it, and there's some l- lesser names that are now a little bit back. You know, in in certain circles, you might encounter them. People like Peter Bogosian, Michael Shermer. Um, yeah, Peter Bogosian did this, you know, the the kind of tried to redo the Sokol hoax with this, uh, you know, by sending like fake papers to gender studies journals and stuff like that. Um, there's there's this group of people that a lot of them made their names for, made names for themselves at this new atheist moment that have kind of reemerged um, in what I think the the term that's been that, that's emerged for this is the intellectual dark web. It's a, it's a silly term, but it's kind of what we're we're stuck with. But I think what's what's carried through is this idea that 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 Real liberalism is uh, is liberalism grounded on this fairly rigid idea of science, reason, objective truth, empiricism, etc. And and so um, it's um, um, so what's um, going on? What's going on here is that this idea is used to say this is what real liberalism is, and anyone else, you know, on especially. On on the left, that might have an alternative idea of what liberalism means, uh, and that could be anyone from you know so-called ca- campus poly- uh, campus activists to uh, even democratic socialists in their own way have a have their own form of liberal ideas, um, to kind of maybe run-of-the-mill progressives. Uh, all of that is rejected because it's not based on this very rigid idea of of a scientifically grounded liberalism. Uh, one last question for you, Jacob. We have been speaking with writer Jacob Hamburger. He is author of the Point Magazine article, What Was New Atheism?, which can be found at thepointmag.com. Jacob is a writer and a co-editor at Tocqueville 21, Franco-American blog on contemporary democracy. You can find out more at tocqueville21.com. And you can follow Jacob on Twitter at J.M. Hamburger. One last question, and as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer where our audience is going to hate your response. You write with Donald Trump in the White House. A return to the strategies of Bush-era liberalism would seem to be irrational at best. As a presidential candidate, 
what Democrat would best exemplify the kind of Bush-era liberalism which you see as a return to uh, irrational at best? Well, um, you're going to hate my answer because I don't really, I don't know if there is one so far. Um, I think, I think what most of the people who have announced their candidacies have have observed is that there's not much of a democratic constituency for the kind of ideas that that I think that you know the say former new atheists are are pushing now. Um, I think that's why a lot of these people are so are so angry, right? They they're so mad at the left because they've, you know, in, in their view, they've, the left has uh, made it impossible for, for there to be a democratic candidate that is running on a real rational politics. So I think if you look at people who, you know, you might have your own skepticism about um, for, for good reasons, like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand. Um, I don't, I think all of them are trying to tap into what they see as, as, what they correctly see as a demand among democratic voters for someone who's going to fight for them and who's going to have, and who has real convictions and, uh, and, and is going to, who has real convictions and is going to fight for those convictions and is going to also take on the bad guys, um, you know, the, the Trump and, and the right and, you know, the alt-right as well to some extent. Um, and so I think, you know, if there's a, I guess the real, the new atheist candidate would be someone like, no, so I shouldn't say that there's nobody because there's uh, there's Howard Schultz. I think it would be someone like <laughs> Howard Schultz, Michael Bloomberg, someone who's someone who is throwing themselves onto the scene in, in the hopes of saying we need to pull things back, we need to get away from all of these scary progressive candidates, um, and and have something more, you know. Um, more rational, right? We we need to be reasonable. We can't uh, we can't expect to enact Medicare for all. We can't expect to make any 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 real big changes. All any what happens is that the idea of making any big changes itself is is cast as irrational. So I think uh, these people are. I think someone these centrist candidates would be the the new atheists. But what's ironic is that they know that they can't make it as Democrats. So Howard Schultz, you know, is going to have to be a third party spoiler candidate. Jacob, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to have you up here in the studio. I appreciate you coming up from Hyde Park. It's good to see you. And uh, what are you doing on Sunday? What are you doing tomorrow? Uh, I guess I'm watching the Super Bowl. Are you going to come over to the bar? Uh, Super Bowl contest, man. (laughs) There's tons of soups. There's going to be like 25 (laughs) soups, man. It's pretty fun. All right. I'll try to stop by. All right. I'll see you, Jacob. Great to see you, man. Really great to see you. Hey, turn off your mic for me, too. Uh, There you go. Right? Yeah, I think. (laughs) You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is Hell the Democracy, celebrating musical Hamilton, created by an American of Puerto Rican descent, is supporting uh, Junta in Puerto Rico, or at least creator... Lin-Manuel Miranda is supporting the government, which locals not so affectionately call a junta. Miranda is supporting the government's austerity policies. We'll find out what the hell is happening in Puerto Rico, which is still suffering from 2017's hurricanes almost a year and a half ago. When we talk to our correspondent in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Dave Buchan, this week's question from hell is, who will be the last American president? 
who will be the last American president. All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on the word support. Again, the question from hell is, who will be the last American president? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the musical Hamilton apparently supports Puerto Rico's junta. The yellow vests are far from done protesting the policies of French President Emmanuel Macron. Our faith in progress is based on racism and a destructive strategy of global dominance. Robot sex and what it reveals about human beings and being human. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares his ode to the farmer. So we didn't get to Rotten History during this break. We'll get that in the next break. We'll also have listener feedback, I hope. We're still trying to catch up on all of the emails we've received, all of the correspondence we received last year. We'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have the question from Hell. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry, live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio. This is Hell. Hamilton is a musical that celebrates U.S. democracy and was created by an American of Puerto Rican descent. So how can bringing Hamilton back to Puerto Rico create a controversy here to tell us how a musical celebrating democracy has been linked to a junta in Puerto Rico. Dave Buchan is our correspondent in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Dave has been living in Puerto Rico since the previous century. There he makes theater with Theater Ublak and El Teatro Barbaro and plays music with La Banda Municipal de Macula Baroon. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Dave. Chuck, long time. How are you? Happy New Year, sir. Has it really been since June that you've been on the show? I was looking back in the archives. I think oh it, it, it's been like... It's s- been a crazy year. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... That's funny. Like you, yeah. We don't care about what's going on in Puerto Rico. On just, like, just like you, uh, Dave. Uh, we don't really care <laughs> about Puerto Rico, you know? It's, 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 you got to ignore it sometimes. You just have to like embrace the full uh, 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 abysmal crash around you. And, and uh, yeah. I want to get I want to get to this whole Hamilton controversy, but first I just want to ask you a couple of real general questions. How okay. is life still different from before the hurricanes hit? Irma hit September sixth, two thousand and seventeen. Ten years or ten days later, Maria hits September sixteenth. We're now one year, four and a half months removed. How is life in Puerto Rico still different from what it was back in August of twenty seventeen? What's fascinating to me is I feel like a lot of the effects of Maria have blended into the general landscape of deterioration that is Puerto Rico. And so when you go by a building that is collapsed, you go, oh, was that Maria or was that just from there from before? Uh, And so it's all kind of blurred together now. Um, There's still, I mean, there are people who are still dealing with FEMA. Uh, there are still people who are trying to get their money. There's still, you know, all of that is still playing out. Um, but he, like here in San Juan, in the metropolis, it's, you know, it looks like it's back to normal, but, but normal is falling apart. 
So what's what's <laughs> been more devastating than for Puerto Rico? Was it the hurricanes or was it bankruptcy followed by austerity? It's it's the latter. It's the latter. it's completely like uh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's um, like Maria. The the one thing that happened with Maria this last year, 2018, there was a hurricane that was going to hit here. Uh, like, was it going to hit or not? It didn't hit. But when they announced that it was, you know, there's a chance next week we're going to hit by a hurricane, you could sense everyone's body just scr- tightening up in nerves and terror. And it was amazing. It was just like everyone just like, oh, God, not again. And and, and if it had hit, it was just the island would have just uh, uh, exploded um, from everyone's going, I can't do this again. So it's still there. It's, it's, it's lurking trauma, uh, and it, it affects everyone. But in our day-to-day lives, most people are able to say, we've moved on from Maria. I mean, except for the people who, who can't. Uh, you know, the people whose houses are still not repaired, uh, and the people who are still waiting on checks, that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, it's just it's, a, it's right under the surface. And and uh, it will come back, you know, with the slightest prick. Uh, prior to arriving in the three-week run of the musical Hamilton, the musical's creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, was quoted saying, people are going to come to Puerto Rico because of Hamilton and hopefully spend a lot of money here, but they're also going to see blue tarps and they're also going to see how much work there is to be done. What does he mean by the blue tarps, and more importantly, how much attention did Hamilton bring to Puerto Rico's remaining challenges? Um, the, well, the blue tarps are the, the famous. Um, that's what FEMA gives us uh, when, when FEMA shows up for a disaster. They and you have no roof. Like here's your blue tarp, always blue, and it's got a little yellow insignia that says FEMA on it, and so it is the symbol of. Uh, one, you just had a disaster, and two, the federal government has come to help or not help. Um, and so from, uh, you know, just flying in on an airplane, you, you look down and you still see blue tarps. Um, and, um, um, but uh, how successful was it in, in allowing people to see? Um, I mean, the area where the show was is in pretty decent shape actually uh they um right across from the theater is this like five story like literally right next to the theater at the driveway there's a five-story building used to be a burger king for years it was a burger king on the first floor and the rest of the floor is completely like bombed out no windows no you know just like empty decaying hulk and then and then burger king decided it was, it was enough of that and so it was just like completely like the corrupted building. Um, so, but when Hamilton came, uh, AT and T thankfully put a giant billboard over it to cover most of it, so that that the people coming to see the show didn't have to look into the decrepit building. <laughs> so they're even trying to hide the blue tarps from. So reportedly, Hamilton yeah. raised fifteen million dollars for Puerto Rico's economy. How much does that help? Because apparently it's going to the Flamboyant Fund, the Miranda family's arts nonprofit, whose mission is to support the arts and showcase local artists. You're a local artist. How much Mm -hmm. will that $15 million help Puerto Rico's economy and help artists in Puerto Rico? 
I am not going to deny that it is helpful. Uh, uh, I, um, from the, um, uh, okay, so the theater is in the middle of San Jose, which is uh, a neighborhood uh, that I live in. Uh, it's, it's like a mile away. It's, it's next to my, my kid's school. Um, all of the businesses in walking distance of that theater are local businesses. Like there, and all of them were really happy. Uh, the bookstore that's kind of uh, the rumors where it was going out of business, which would be a, a drag, they were picked clean by all those people coming to see the show. All the bars, all the cafes, they were really happy. And 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 in the sense of like, I'm going to bring a, you know, I'm going to bring Maria here. People are going to come see it and spend money. It's true they did, and and, and it. Uh, Give it to him. That works. Um, the Flamboyant Foundation, um, they give... I know people who get money from them. And I know people who would refuse... Would like, I will not take your money, sir. If You know, like, I, uh, like it's blood money. They're not going to take it. Um, but it is... Um, I mean, I think the thing about it is it's fleeting. Um, like we're still in the post Maria response, um, in a couple of years, what, what, what's going to be there? Uh, it's nice while it's last, you know, can't deny that, but, um, it is, um, uh, not necessarily going to change anything in a long term. I found it's getting, it's getting people through a difficult stretch. And so. I, I, I found this fascinating article at a website called Remezcla, R-E-M-E-Z-C-L-A dot com. And it reports Sophia Melendez, a longtime student activist, uh, alumni, now working through a master's in biology, wonders if Miranda's Flamboyant Foundation should be addressing more immediate problems, saying the money is going to stay in Puerto Rico, but it's not really addressing the big issues that we have right now. Remezcla adds around $1 million was already used to restore the theater after hurricane-related damage and grants for two major museums, a theater company, the Ballets de San Juan, a music initiative on the smaller island of Culebra, the uh, arts nonprofit Beta Local, and several more. Then they quote Melendez again, saying, it's like, yes, let's get money for the arts, which is very important, don't get me wrong, but I think there's certain priorities. Let's fix up the schools that are falling in pieces still a year after the hurricane. Let's fix up the rest of the university that you plan to use. Let's do something a bit more direct, directly practical. Is the Mm -hmm. money raised by Hamilton being misprioritized? Is it being used for things that Puerto Ricans really don't need as much as they need other things that have been uh, torn away by hurricanes and austerity? Uh, give us bread, but give us roses too. <laughs> it's been it, uh, 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 There are so many priorities. There are so many things that need to be done. If you address five of them, you are ignoring twenty-five of them, and that doesn't. And I'm perfectly fine with I'm going to with whoever saying I'm going to address these five. And that's and 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 you're ignoring another twenty five, but uh, I don't know. I I think that uh, it is um, it, it's money that's being well spent. 
like every every everything that you just listed, yeah, are are doing good things. Uh, good things that people need. Uh, do they also need other things? Do those other things need to be addressed? Yes, of course, completely. Uh, but that doesn't like if you're fighting for the minimum wage, it doesn't mean that you are uh, actively hurting transgender rights. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. If you if you're you know, and so um, you know, it's it's it, it, it's it's going to good places. So actor Donald Weber Jr., who played Aaron Burr in the Hamilton production that was performed in Puerto Rico, was quoted saying. This show is about the founding fathers trying to make sure our country ran successfully. How can we do that if we don't help each other? Now, there's lots of irony in there, Dave. Uh, How weird was it that a musical about how the founding fathers could make the United States run successfully, how odd was it that that was being performed in a country where the U.S. was making Puerto Rico run not very successfully? It's it's funny. I find it. So ironic that it's beyond irony. Like you can't even. I feel like you can't even touch it. It's like, yeah, it's just like, of course, um, uh, of course, it's insane. Uh, but um, um, but I don't think um, like um, in the time there was a Times article about. Uh, people's antipathy towards Hamilton uh, and, and, you know, like the response to Hamilton. And, and this one guy got quoted who I know, and he and uh, he said, you know, we're just not that into it because it's an American musical. And, uh, and it's about America and your founding fathers. And, and, uh, and to that, I, I just, I have to say, por favor. Uh, you know, I went to see Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse at the, in Bayamon over Christmas, and no one in the audience had any, like, deep problems with connecting with a character that was based in New York City. There, the, um, it's, on the one hand, oh my God, of course, it's so, like, uh, ironic that here's the show about an, uh, uh, an American revolution against colonialism, uh, brought to you from the colonial power. Um, but on the other hand, it's just like, yeah, it's part of the course. You know, it's just like people um, can find interest in all kinds of stuff like that. You know, it's just like, so it's on the one hand, it's like, yeah, but on the other hand, eh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just find it hilarious too. Uh, so, uh, but there's an issue with Miranda himself as reported at Ramezcla.com. Miranda's, Quote, very, Miranda's very public support of the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability yeah. Act, PROMESA, the 2016 federal law touted as a means of debt relief, which brought with it a fiscal oversight board comprised of seven U.S. appointed, therefore not elected by Puerto Ricans members, that since its implementation has issued budget-reducing austerity measures, figuring or figures heavily in the opposition's complaints to the production of uh, Hamilton and Miranda's presence in Puerto Rico. How upset are Puerto, Rican, Puerto Ricans over Miranda's support for what is called La Junta? Or is this completely kind of, well, of course, that's what Lin-Manuel Miranda would do. He's a rich guy who's an American of Puerto Rican descent who is coming here from the United States. Is it not a surprise that he supports La Junta? In a way... La Junta and what it is doing is so much 
bigger than Lin-Manuel Miranda, that his support for it is a drop in the bucket. Um, because, um, okay, so the, right now in the federal courts, uh, Judge Swain, uh, who is overseeing the restructuring of Puerto Rican debt as a part of La Junta. And by the way, La, La Junta is not a term of like, it's, uh, you know, a, a disrespect or, or it's, it's actually literally the Spanish word of the group, the, the board. Um, and it in the States kind of turned into um, this derogatory term from, I think, dating from Chile uh, when Pinochet came in and, and, and there was La Junta. And it was like, and it turned into like, oh, it's uh, La Junta. It, La Junta is simple. Man. It's simply just like the group, uh, the fiscal control board. And so... Um, the plan now that she is overseeing whether and deciding whether or not to implement is that uh, one quarter of all the sales tax income that Puerto Rico raises is going to be sent directly to the United States uh, and in the, the bondholders, the hedge funds, for the next 40 years. That's $400 million a year for now. By the time it reaches 2060, it'll be $900 million yearly. Uh, 2060 is when my teenage daughter turns my age, which is old. Um, that is huge. It's bigger than Hamilton. It's bigger than whether or not Lin-Manuel Miranda supported it or not. Um, it is 40 years of enforced austerity and 40 years in which schools, pensions, roads, hospitals are just going to have to fight it out. Um, and that looms uh, large. Um, so um, uh, he supported it. Uh, back in 2016, um, the Puerto Rican governor announces that can't pay the can't pay the debt anymore. We have no money. And because we're a territory, we can't declare bankruptcy either. And so there's a general cry of do something. And the Congress responds by doing something. Uh, hold on. I'm, I'm, suddenly I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm just going to click into what I wrote. Because <laughs> now I'm jumping all over the place. No, go ahead. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm confusing myself. Um, so here, let me jump into what I wrote. Because I think it, it kind of addresses these, these things. Um, so, um, ba, 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 ba. so ba, let's go back to Hamilton for a second. Uh, I think, did you hear that they moved out of the, the theater at the University of Puerto Rico? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So the, um, uh, that was just, uh, even for the University of Puerto Rico, that was a drop in the bucket. I mean, it was bad. It was, it was clearly like this, like, uh, kind of, uh, insult and lost opportunity and, and just like, uh, Bad move on the part of the Mirandas. Um, but it was a drop in the bucket. That same week that they uh, moved the, the show, the Middle States Commission on Higher Education declared all the campuses at the University of Puerto Rico to be in danger of losing their accreditation due to the instability of funding. And so they all had to submit new financial statements, proof of their sustainability, and also plans for what to do with their students if they get closed. So the issue wasn't so much that there was no show at the university, but rather there might not be a university. Um, 
And before I go on, uh, I'm just going to speak uh, a little bit about Hamilton, colon, an American musical, the actual play. I can say I've not seen it, and I've heard a couple of songs, and they're fine. Uh, but I uh, raise a glass to, to Miranda and say salud. Uh, it is, from what I have been told of everyone I know who has seen it, an amazing show. Uh, I've been serenaded songs to it by a nine-year-old in my garden. It is a cast made up in almost entirely of working black and brown actors. Uh, it does good things in the world as a piece of art. Uh, and to that I say, like, you can't take it away from him. Problem is that there's a lot more to Hamilton uh, colon, an American musical than just the show. Um, and then, um, so as it arrived here, um, there's everything around it. Cause it's not just a show. It is, I mean, it's not, you know, there's, there's lines down the streets. There's, uh, you know, the, the ripple effects, all those local businesses, uh, all those people coming in from out of town to see it. Bon Jovi, walking around uh, the Placita de San Curse, which is this place where um, you go drinking on the weekends. Uh, and demographically speaking, it was the perfect place for that man to be. Like like when it, when news kind of spread, like, but Joby's walking around La Placita, it's like, well, of course he is. Those are his people. Um, but, um, uh, where are we here? Um, so, um, so back to 2016. Uh, 2016, uh, the debt crisis uh, uh, explodes. Something must be done. Uh, and uh, the United States responded in the only way possible, which was to impose a fiscal control board, which would drain whatever money could be drained out of Puerto Rico and into the hands of the United States. And I say it's the only way possible because that is, after all, what Puerto Rico is to the United States a territory, a colony, a means to enrich the colonial power. The vote for PROMESA by numerous Democrats uh, of varying stripes is kind of like, think of it as the, the, the vote for the Clinton crime bill that haunts many of progressives. And it haunts the Manuel Miranda. Like he is, uh, uh, amongst others, is saying, well, that didn't work out like we wanted it to. Um, and I think what happened is, is that that call of we've got to do something was constricted by the way that Puerto Rico fits into U.S. politics. And there is a limit, and you can only do things within a certain boundaries that remain the colonial relationship. Uh, so here we are with the junta in control. Uh, and uh, and the Island is noticeably changing. Um, you know, after Maria, you had asked me if the response was being affected by uh, class division. And this, uh, my memory was like like a week after it hit. And it was like, we're all screwed. Like at, this, at that point, everyone was just scrambling. And, um, but as we've come out of it, you, like when I first moved in, in 99, I first came here like 95 or 96. I one of the things that that surprised me about Puerto Rico from from the states is the way that classes mixed here. Um, you, I would go to a restaurant or a bar, and there was people of 
every class. And, and in, of course there's still, you know, the restaurant on top of the bank and, 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 and levels of society and, 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 and poor places. But there was a lot of places where everyone just gathered together and that is changing. And the divisions are becoming much more apparent. Uh, Puerto Rico is one of the most unequal societies in the world and you can really see it now. And that happening at the same time, I mean, I think there's other larger issues, but La Junta being in, in control as that happens is really um, uh, apparent um, these days. Um, the Junta, by the way, uh, the, the director of it was asked, how much longer are you going to be in control of Puerto Rico? And she said, um, oh, fun fact, she's also the former finance minister of Ukraine. She said that uh, the La Junta would be here for four fiscally sound years. And then she pointed out that that clock has not started yet. Um, there's four fiscal years once we get to to being fiscally sound um, in their determination. So we don't even know when those four years begin. Um, but back to the show, because uh, Hamilton uh, was all these other things. Um, and it wasn't just the money that was coming in. Uh, and there was a lot of money coming in. Uh, it was also concern. It was a chance to see the effects of, of Hurricane Maria. And that's what Julian Castro, 2020, uh, did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, or at least that was what the press release said was the plan. He came to speak at a conference here in San Juan of the Latino Victory Fund, uh, which usually holds its conferences in Washington, but decided this year to hold it here in the run of its newest board members, Sons Play. Uh, the Latino Victory Fund has encouraged all Democratic presidential candidates to come to Puerto Rico to, and this is according to the press release, see the effects of Maria. It doesn't mention come here and see the effects of the PROMESA Act, which we supported and now regret. It doesn't say come here and see the effects of 120 years of colonialism. It's Maria. And I think at this point, Maria has become this very convenient way of saying the problems in Puerto Rico are about a hurricane and not about a colonial relationship. Um, uh, so uh, Lin-Manuel's father, Luis Miranda Jr., uh, was born here in Vega Baja, uh, and he was at the center of that, uh, of that conference, of the Latino Victory uh, Fund. He also founded the Hispanic Federation, um, which does, as far as I can tell from their website, a lot of good work, you know, fighting against discrimination and making you know, fighting for voting rights and, and all that kind of, you know, stuff. And also lobbied for Promesa and and, uh, and and what turned into La Junta. Um, so a side note on why Julian Castro came here and also Elizabeth Warren, 2020, like, hey, Illinois, Puerto Rico's already had two presidential candidates. How many have you had? We are hot this year. Uh, so we don't vote for the president but we vote for presidential candidates in the primaries. And I think the reason we have primaries is it's a really good way to raise money. And it's also a really good way to get votes back in the States. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and then also you never know if you eventually get you know, elected to be president, you know, one day you're going to have to govern over the people here in Puerto Rico. So it's, Good to know what's going on. Um, the Latino uh, Victory Fund, uh, they support, uh, that's like the, the political arm. They support candidates. Uh, if you go to the website, it says, here's our, our candidates from 2018. And there's Chewy, there's uh, Alexandria Ocasio 
Ocasio-Cortez, there's Bob Menendez from New Jersey, who, uh, by the way, was the only Latino senator to actually vote against PROMESA. Um, there was 30 Congress people came to see Hamilton and also schmooze with Lee Manuel's father, and I'm sure make some donations, uh, including Nancy Pelosi. Uh, the Clintons were here. Uh, the Clintons came here, and I saw a video of them uh, digging out little plants with some kids because uh, they have a uh, their charitable charitable arm uh, is uh, spending money to, of course, alleviate the suffering of Maria. Um, but it's not about Maria anymore, or it is still about Maria, but it's about something much bigger. Um, but it's about something much bigger that no one in American politics is really willing to address. Um, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked if she supported the repeal of the Jones Act, uh, which draws this legal line between Puerto Rico and our actual geographical location on the Earth and our neighbors of the Caribbean and then Latin America, turning us into, well, a colony of the United States, that... Uh, that um, makes it so that 80% of our food is shipped in from Jacksonville, Florida. Um, When asked if she supported the repeal of it, she said no, because that would mean Puerto Rico would have to become independent. And yeah, there are two different Jones Axes, and her response was a little muddled, but you get the idea. And it's not her, it is every politician in America, from... uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Bernie Sanders, Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, they're all on board with, I'm happy with the colony continuing if that's what the people of Puerto Rico want. And if they ever vote by a majority plus one for statehood or independence, I'll support that. But until then, we can just continue the colonial relationship. And that idea of, like, oh, we'll just let the people decide is flawed in, in, in the various ways. One, there's been numerous politicized. Um, two, uh, that's actually not how decolonization works, according to the United Nations. Like, we're still an occupied country here. Uh, there are U.S. troops here. There, we are under the U.S. flag. And, and if you're going to hold up politicized, they all are supposed to leave uh, uh, so that the, the people can vote and decide. Um, but there's an inability to say, to look at the problems in Puerto Rico and look at strangling debt, uh, and looking at an economic, uh, stagnation, which is, um, due in no small part to our having been cut out of the part of the world that we are actually physically a part of, um, is um, is what's the the, in, the 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 impossible thing for to to say in in American politics? Mm-hmm. Instead of saying there's this problem, you know what? We should not be a colonial power anymore. We should grant independence to Puerto Rico. We should take responsibility for the debt that, as a colony, that they were forced to to. Uh, rack up, and then you start the negotiations on stuff like, well, we might as well keep the postal trucks here. Uh, you know, give us the postal system. Makes sense. Um, that's just simply impossible. I mean, the other option for ending the colonial relationship uh, floated is uh, statehood. 
which uh, many progressives are uh, 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 interested in because it would mean uh, uh, possibly more uh, Democratic senators and uh, senators and Congress people, and also, of course, granting the full rights to, to people who have been uh, colonized for over 120 years. Um, but to me, statehood, uh, and, and, and I'm not even going to argue against statehood from the reasons why it's bad for Puerto Rico, because there are plenty. But the reason statehood is, is, is colonialism triumphant. It's complete annexation. It's Hawaii. I mean, if, 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 uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's New Mexico. It's, it's, uh, it's not an end to colonialism. It's, it's colonialism, um, finally winning. Um, and here we're stuck, uh, in that impossible choice, um, that, uh, American politicians are unable to say. And there's, um, you know, there's charities doing good works and there's foundations doing good things and there's, and there's politicians learning about what we're going through. But in the meantime, the timer hasn't even started on the junta (laughs) and the next 40 years are going to be spent as an ATM for hedge funds. Um, Dave, uh, we're up against the clock. I really appreciate it, but that's a really great point to make that it's, you know, it's not just the hurricane. It's not just bankruptcy. It's the view of uh, colonialism being imposed upon Puerto Rico by the United States for well over a century now. Dave, it's a pleasure having you back on the show. Dave Buchan has been reporting to us here on This Is Hell live from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Really appreciate you being back on the show, Dave, and we'll talk to you soon and get caught up more on the bankruptcy and the colonialism that are destroying Puerto Rico instead of being distracted by the hurricanes. Thank you, Chuck. Stay beautiful. Your eyewitness to grief, This Is Hell, France's Yellow Vest movement saw a big drop-off in participation over the holidays leading to reports of the movement against inequality and unfairness in France and the policies of President Emmanuel Macron had ended. The protests were over and France could get back to normal. But that's not what happened. Instead, with holidays over, the yellow vests are back in full gear. We'll learn why when we speak live from Paris with journalist Cole Stangler, who wrote last week's Jacobin article. It should be... Journalist Cole Stanger, live from Paris. Uh, the article that he wrote was called Back on the Offensive. After a steady decline in turnout, France's Yellow Vest movement is on the rise again. Emmanuel Macron's call for a great national debate lies dead in the water. This week's question from hell is who will be the last American president? Who will be the last American president? All replies will be read on air during the next hour of this week's This is Hell. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on support. In fact, if you support thisishell.com, you might even get that tote bag or our uh, stainless steel camping mug or T-shirt or whatever. Again, the question from hell is, who will be the last American president? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the yellow vests are far from done protesting the policies of French President Emmanuel Macron. Our faith in progress is based on racism and a destructive strategy of global dominance. 
robot sex and what it reveals about human beings and being human. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares his ode to the farmer. We're hoping to get to rotten history. We're hoping get to get to listener feedback. We'll also have what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, the question from hell, well, we got some listeners to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online and what's happening on upcoming episodes of our show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, so clearly... Noam's gone insane. This is hell. France's yellow vest movement appeared to have burnt itself out over the holidays. By getting President Macron to rescind the fuel tax hike, it appeared as though the president had fought back the protests, even silencing them. But as 2019 has already shown, those protests are far from over and far from satisfied by the government's reaction here to, again, Help us better understand the Yellow Vest movement live from Paris journalist Cole Stangler wrote last week's Jacobin article back on the offensive after a steady decline in turnout. France's Yellow Vest movement is on the rise again. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Cole. Thanks so much for having me. Cole is a former staff writer at International Business Times and in these times. You can follow Cole on Twitter at Cole Stangler, and you can find out more about Cole at his website, colestangler.com. And just as an aside, his most recent writing at The Nation is titled Erdogan's War on Workers. Turkey's crackdown and dissent extends the country's fractured labor movement. So Cole's doing a lot of writing on labor movements around the world. Now, you were back on in mid-December to talk to us about an article you wrote at Jacobin called Yellow Vests Against the President of the Rich and an article at Nation, at The Nation, What's Really Behind the Yellow Vest Movements. And both you argued, and correct me if I mischaracterize you in any way, um, a you argued that the Yellow Vest movement was not about a rise in taxes as much as it was about a rise in taxes after tax cuts for the rich, and that this was never about climate change. It was about the masses having to pay, uh, having to pay to fight climate change, while the rich did not. It was about inequality. Yet still, the Yellow Vest movement is being described here in the States and the U.S. media as a right-wing nationalist, anti-tax, climate change, deprioritizing, if not denying, group of reactionaries. There's no different than the rise of the far right in Italy or Greece or Germany. To you, what explains that narrative continuing despite, as you pointed out the last time we talked, the people who started the movement saying in their original statements that the protests had nothing to do with climate change and had everything to do with inequality? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a very good question. It, it, it's, it's hard to say exactly where that impression is coming from. I, I suspect it, it probably has something to do with the way that uh, the, the American press looks at Europe and they see, uh, you know, these movements that are springing up elsewhere. You know, you pointed out Italy. I, I think that's probably has something to do with it. But but no, absolutely. You know, like, like I said last time, and as, as I've argued before, I think it's pretty clear to, to people on the ground here, when you go to these protests, when you talk to people, when you read about what they're saying, this is really about... Uh, economic uh, economic injustice. You know, I, I don't want to. I think it's important not to not to fetishize or romanticize the movement. Uh, there's lots of flaws in it. There's lots of, of of contradictions. They're not very clear. The demands are are still very diffuse. But I think it's. I think one thing that is clear is that um, this really is about bread and butter economic issues. You know, I think I mentioned uh, when we spoke last time. There had been one uh, at that point. There had been one major academic research study um, into the protests because you know this movement really caught the country by storm. 
coming outside of traditional political parties, coming outside of labor movements. People wanted to know who these people were that were protesting. There had been one study, I think, when we last spoke, and, and actually since then, a new study came out in, in really uh, reaffirming what, what that first study showed, which is that this protest um, are, is, is about economic issues. You know, in, in, in this, this study that was conducted through these Facebook groups that have been a, a major part of organizing actions, um, you know, they found that the major issues here were inequality, it was uh, what's what in France is known as purchasing power, so so um, um, pretty self-explanatory. And then the question of poverty. So these three these three questions were at the top of the list. This is what's driving protest. Um, and by the same token, the kinds of people that are protesting tend to be low-income people. They tend to be either working-class people or, or or low middle-class people that that feel uh, uh, that have a sentiment of, of in, in French of being uh, a déclassé, so so losing your social standing, falling in social status. And, and having difficulty making ends meet every month. That's what's driving the, this movement, and that, that continues to be the case. And I think, you know, as you pointed out as well, it's been surprising. The movement has picked up momentum again here over the last few weeks, and, 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 and today again in Paris, more demonstrations and, and uh, no signs of, of, of slowing. Well, I know that you just touched on this, but I want to make sure that people understand. You write some 50,000 people turned out nationwide on the first weekend of the new year, which was a huge crowd compared to the the, uh, size of the crowds that were happening over the holidays. And then you write that that was followed by 80,000 people last weekend for Act 9, named for the ninth straight weekend of protest. As you were saying, today is the 10th straight weekend of protest. This is Act 10. But again, I know that you were saying this about the bigger issues that this is about. Why still protest? The yellow vests got the tax hike uh, that they wanted to have stopped on fuel ta- on a fuel subsidy. So why not quit and go home? Because you know, again, from the U.S. media point of view, that's what this was all about. This was all about their wallets and something being an anti-tax movement. What does it tell us about this movement? when it continues after the fuel tax that they were originally uh, opposing was rescinded? Yeah, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't only just, I think I agree with everything you said, but it, it, in addition to that, it wasn't only just the government canceling the fuel tax increase. It actually gave more concessions, including most notably an expansion of a, of a wage subsidy for low-income workers, so basically amounting to up to 100 euros a month in additional income through the expansion of this program. That was another concession on top of the on top of the the canceling of that fuel tax hike, so no, I think absolutely the fact that this this is ongoing shows that that people have a deep um, deep anger at their at their their living conditions. Um, you know, France has a has a very strong social safety net that uh, exists, and I think is is, is much more successful than, than than we're used to in the United States, and that that prevents poverty from being. Um, worse than it currently is, but again, referring to that the poll I mentioned that that excuse me, not the poll that the study that was done um, by these researchers at, at Grenoble, so political scientists looking at the yellow bus protesters. Who again, who are these people protesting? Why are they continuing to do this? What they found was that 68 percent of the people that, that they spoke to in this in this pool of people um, were making less than the uh, median income in France, median household income per month, which is just 2,480 euros per month. That's the that's the median income. 68% of people that were part of this movement were making less than that. So these are people that, that are upset at their, at their living conditions. They're upset about um, uh, either the lack of employment or the, the, and France has higher unemployment than in the U.S., again, around 10% unemployment in France. They're upset about the lack of jobs and the quality of jobs that they have. Um, so there is this, this, this sentiment of, of frustration, and that gets translated into politics as well. I think another important characteristic about about France, you know, especially comparing to the U.S., is that things 
very quickly have a, have a tendency to, to instantly become national level um, conflicts. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a smaller country geographically, and I think also in terms of people's relationship to the state. People have high expectations of what the state provides to them. And so when, when they saw this, this, you know, this, this fuel tax that was affecting them, um, saying, you know, you have, to, you have to be ready to pay, you know, every time you go to the, you know, the, the, to the, to the pump another 25 cents per gallon, um, you know, that, that's insulting when you, when you, when you say the state condoning that, you see the state condoning that, and at the same time getting a massive tax cut for super rich. So you instantly look to, people have a tendency to look at the state um, as, as, as an arbiter of, of, of social justice. And when things aren't going well, and they aren't going well right now, you hold the state responsible. And that's why we've seen these calls, as ridiculous as they sound, I think, to some people, you know, really earnest calls for Macron to resign because people hold him responsible. There's, a, I think, an important social contract, and there's a sense that it's not being respected, um, and it, not, it hasn't been respected for, for some time, and in particular by this government, um, by Emmanuel Macron, the, the, the so-called president of the rich, and that, that tag is stuck with it, president that's extremely unpopular. So, uh, what does Macron's willingness to end the fuel tax subsidy and to expand uh, wage subsidy. What does that reveal to you about Macron? Is he finally showing his true anti-fuel tax, pro-public subsidy self? Does this show he's a politician who is doing his best to represent and react to the public's demands? Or is this out of political desperation, trying to buy off the public to keep his government in power? What does Macron's response so far to the protests say to you about who Macron is and what Macronism is? I think it, I think it was clear that the government really did not want to concede here. You know, they, they've made a point since since taking office. So uh, back in back in 2017, in mid 2017, when Emmanuel Macron assumed the presidency, the idea was, unlike past presidents, uh, whether that was Sarkozy or Chirac or Hollande, unlike past French presidents who make concessions when their reforms are, are challenged. Uh, the idea was Emmanuel Macron and his the supporters around him. Um, the idea was they were not going to concede. To these old, um, the to fall under these old patterns of conceding to labor unions, um, of being blocked by what they deem to be these kind of uh, archaic institutions and and ways of thought um, that are that were you know blocking France's ability to realize its full economic potential. So there's this kind of vision of France being uh, blocked by 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 you know these these dinosaur institutions that a need to to tr- to transcend that that was very much the mentality of, of of Emmanuel Macron and for for the the beginning phase of his presidency he he rammed through his policies without regard for um the opposition that they that they that they provoked um and without regard for for um for public opinion in, in many cases so when you think about things like the the repeal of the wealth tax that was unpopular he did it anyway you think about the labor reforms that were Broadly unpopular, a little bit less unpopular than than than, than the wealth tax, um, um, than, than canceling the wealth tax, but still still not very popular. He he did it anyways, and this was very much the mentality. And what's really interesting about the yellow bus movement, among many other things, is this is a, is is a clear a defeat for the government. The government said that they were not going to uh, that they were not going to concede on this question of the fuel tax hike. They did that. Not only did they do that, but when faced with continued protests um, and continued uh, support for the movement, they made more concessions. So that 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 um, expansion of the wage subsidy program, um, they have this this uh, this so-called great national debate is is what they've also unveiled here, a, a kind of forum to discuss um, the some of the issues 
that have that have been at the heart of this movement. So it's, it's an attempt from the government to to kind of throw some um, you know some crumbs at, at, at the movement. Um, but 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 the fact is they they do concede. And I think the lesson here, if you're a yellowized protester, is that actually <laughs> protest does work, and not just protest, but really confrontational tactics do you know. Have have gotten the goods. I don't think that that you know. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I think that's just a, a genuine observation of what's happened here. There's no question about it. Um, these protests have delivered what the labor movement was unable to deliver for 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 years now. And the lesson here is that this, this government actually can be moved. They they will be moved when they're confronted with enough with enough pressure. Um, but going way back to your original question, I think, which is which is what does this reveal about Emmanuel Macron? You know, he he made those concessions because I think he was faced with, you know, mounting uh, opposition, and 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 I think it was it was obvious how popular this this movement was. It simply could not be ignored. So there was a sense that he really needed to do something. So they've done that. Um, they've they've made those concessions, and that's and I think with the, the great national debate, which Ralph just referenced, that's part of of uh, you know the carrot here of, of the government saying we understand your pain, we understand you know this the problems that you're upset about date, you know, well beyond the presidency. These are, these are deep social and political uh, problems that, that, you know, we need to address in the long term, and we understand you. So that, that, that's the one hand of it. But I think at the same time, the government is taking a, a, a confrontational approach in, in different ways. Um, you know, one thing we haven't, I haven't mentioned yet, but is extremely important, um, and it's becoming more important as, as this movement goes on, is the, the, the police violence. The police violence and um, um, you know, more more specifically as well, a new law that the government is is uh, proposing right now that would really uh, that would really um, attack the right to protest as it stands in France. So basically, limiting limiting the, the amount of, of um, limiting the amount of limiting the ability of people to protest. So we're seeing a, a kind of you know two pronged approach: a bunch of concessions, uh, rhetoric saying we understand your pain, but also at the same time um, cracking down. Through uh, police presence, a, a, a systematically strong police presence at all of these demonstrations, and actually now we're seeing legislatively um, attempts to to rein in the right to protest. So then, here's the other way that is kind of framed here in the United States: if you are in opposition to Macron, I mean, you would the same thing happened here at the beginning of the Obama uh, administration. If you are critical of Obama, then you must be supporting the Republicans. If you are critical of Macron and Macron's closest competitor in the last presidential election was Marine Le Pen from the far right, then you're clearly in support of Marine Le Pen. Or if not, you're at least creating an environment where you will be helping usher in a Marine Le Pen government. How much has as the loss, as you've described it, uh, by uh, uh, the Macron government to the yellow vest led to a situation, led to an environment that's fertile for a rise of Marine Le Pen in the far right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. Everyone's wondering that here as well. The, the polling doesn't seem to indicate, uh, you know, that big of a swing in her favor. She's gone up a little bit in the polls, but, but not in a really substantial way. Uh, you know, she continues to have it a, a, a significant amount of support, a real base, but it doesn't tend to to go much much higher than than thirty percent or so. So, you know, the, the the fact is Emmanuel Macron is extremely unpopular, uh, but Marine Le Pen is also extremely unpopular. Um, so is Jean Luc Mélenchon of of the the left wing France Insoumise. Um, you know, who I think maybe some of your listeners might have some some you know points in common with 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 Mélenchon and want want to see him succeed. But 
the fact is in France today that, that no major political figure is, is, is popular. No one has majoritarian political support. Part of why it makes the situation um, exciting in, in some ways, but also very frightening. And I think that's, that, that, that's really the risk of, of, of you know, success for the National Front is, is that we don't really know what the, the future holds because there's a clear lack of political hegemony in France today. It's not coming from Emmanuel Macron and his kind of light neoliberalism um, with, you know, with kind of French <laughs> characteristics, which is, you know, keeping the state um, funded to a certain extent, while also making these, um, these you know, um, you know, small reform, you know, these, these reforms uh, one at a time, slowly undercutting um, the, the welfare state. You know, it's not coming from, there's not majoritarian support. The hegemony does not exist for, for Marine Le Pen either, and, and her kind of warped um, anti-immigrant um barely veiled racist, you know, political program. It's not coming from Mélenchon either in his kind of left populist program. Um there's just there's there's clear anger at, at all <laughs> at all political forces here. And that's another underlying um um uh, reason why the of us are so popular too, um I think, is that they're seen as 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 this kind of anti establishment political force. And that's very popular in France today. I don't want to romanticize that again, but that that's I think a major part of their success, and in some ways, um, and and, and uh, you know, polls showed the Yellowettes continue to have broad support. In some ways, they are, you know, to some extent, a kind of empty signifier for frustration um, against the government and the current economic and, and political order. Um, it, it, you can be left wing and, and, and upset and be upset about the lack of progress on climate change, about the racism, the racism of the Macron government not doing enough to, to, to prevent to, to help asylum seekers. You can be on the right. And be upset at Macron, you still see the Elevest as representing this kind of anti-establishment, um, you know, kind of politics, and that appeals to people. So, so you know, it's it's unclear where all this is headed. I, I have to say, I think you know, it'd be, it'd be it'd be silly to predict exactly where this is going. Everyone's been wrong to this date. No one, no one, you know, can can tell you. I think seriously, look at you, look at you the straight face, and tell you they know where this is going to go because this movement is really unprecedented um, in, in in French political history. Uh, Nuit Debut, which we covered, the movement, which we covered back in the spring of 2016 with Marissa Holmes and uh, Marina Citroen, uh, they started with protests against a proposed labor reform like this situation recently by then-President Francois Hollande, uh, which would make it easier for companies to lay off workers, loosen limits on working hours, and reduce overtime payments. Hollande was from the Socialist Party, and Macron is from the Centrist Party he himself formed in 2016 en Manche. How much is Macron Hollande and Hollande Macron? To what extent are Macron's anti-worker policies similar to Hollande's proposals, both of which sparked protests? How much is this disconnect between the government, no matter what party's in power, and workers? How long has this been going on? Yeah, you know, I think Emmanuel Macron comes from the Socialist Party originally. Um, He was economic minister under François Hollande, and then uh, kind of famously stabbed him in the back and <laughs> prepared his own presidential campaign while, while Hollande was, was continuing to, to decline substantially in the polls. So Macron comes from similar circles. France has a very tight ruling class um, and political elite. You know, Macron went to um, the, the, top, uh, the top school for, for the French bureaucracy and administrators, the École Nationale de Administration, the National Administrative School, and uh, you know, it's produced a number of presidents um, in, 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 in France. Macron comes from this, this 
political um, establishment. Um, and when I say that term, I think it's important to really say in France in particular, it's a very tight knit world of people. Um, the ANOC, the ENA class that, that Macron graduated with only had, you know, a couple hundred people in it. And, and they're all, they're all, or most of them tend to be, um, in important roles in, in government. And, and these people all know each other, tend to know each other, um, and tend to have high ranking positions, um, across the government and, and high ranking positions within political parties. So. Macron is very much of this of this establishment world, which I think is you know an, an important point, as, as, as obvious as it may sound to a lot of people, just to hammer away at. Because when you think back to to his election, the way he was presented um, as being this kind of new figure, um, you know, he was younger, he's attractive, at least relatively <laughs> compared to past presidents. Um, you know, he's he's and I, you know I just finished reading uh, for for a, for a book review this this book by. Uh, the, the economist bureau chief in Paris talking about Macron being this new, um, you know, almost anti-establishment figure who's going to transform France. And he famously wants to, said he wants to tra- transform France into a startup nation. So you have all this, this kind of veneer of, 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 of newness and, and, and freshness, but he comes from the same order. And that's, I think, why, you know, the movement has been, has been so popular in opposition. He, he comes of this world, you know, he's from this world and, and, at the end of the day, too, his support in Parliament, um, you know, is 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 coming from, um, you know, wealthier wealthier people as well. Wealthier, um, um, you know, his, his, his a little bit different. Let me let me let me just uh, be more clear about this. So, in Parliament, his his party, you know, elected um, the Amarche Party has people that were not necessarily former politicians. That's true. They like to talk about that a lot, but they're also uh, highly overrepresenting. Um, uh, upper class uh, parts of, of France, you know, uh, administrators, white collar professionals, people from the business world, and that's not at all representative of the, of the rest of the country. So, you know, Macron and his party in Parliament are both the political establishment and wealthier France, and they're not representative. And I think that's that's the real source of of, of the problem here. And, and again, we don't know where this is going to go, but um, I don't know if you were going to ask me about that, but but I think I think one interesting one interesting kind of potential step forward here is that we have coming up um, coming up next week really is the first attempt from from labor um, to or the first potential alliance between organized labor in a serious way and the yellow movement and that's really where potentially things could, could kind of um, hit hit a new level here there's there's calls from France's second largest union to strike next Tuesday and for the first time has have actually been supported by the yellow vest movement and by important yellow vest uh, leaders and organizers themselves, so potentially a, 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 an alliance here between labor and the Elevus, and I think that's when really we could see things, uh, um, you know, heat up again even even more. Well, then I've got bad news for you, Cole. That means I'm going to be bugging you real soon to be back on the show to keep us updated on what's happening. Uh, Cole, one last question for you. We've been speaking with journalist Cole Stangler live from Paris, who wrote last week's Jacobin article back on the offensive after a steady decline in turnout. France's yellow vest movement is on the rise again. Emmanuel Macron's call for a great national debate lies dead in the water. And I find that great national debate 
really fascinating because of the way that Nui Debu back in 2016, March, April 2016, were doing these nightly people's assemblies. And now we see the government of France having this great national debate that vaguely similar or somehow co-opting of the idea. I, I, I just found that fascinating. But anyway, uh, my question, uh, one last question for you, and it is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response is what is taking place right now in France a class war? And if so, to what degree do you think that leads to the Yellow Vest movement and the current events in France being misreported in the Western or U.S. news media? Because those are two words you definitely can't uh, mention on the air, and that's an idea you definitely can't discuss in the U.S. news media and that's class war. Is this a class war? And that's why we don't really understand it here in the States. I, I think it, I think it is definitely a, a class war. I think that's absolutely what's happening right here. Um, as far as the, you know, the U S perception of it, uh, it's a little bit difficult to, to answer. I, I think maybe, I think maybe one, you know, one way of, of, of getting at that is that I think in the U S when I talk to, to, to friends from back home and, and, and journalists as well, I think when they see the yellow vest, there's a tendency to 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 look at things through uh, you know a national lens or through the lens of race as well. Um, that's that's the way that that, that uh, a lot of you know liberals and people on the left as well in the U.S. view politics for, for lots of you know deep seated historical reasons. Um, and I think you know and and that that could be part of it as well. And I I think that that that's maybe part of the, the lack of understanding of the of the LOS movement. Um this idea that they're necessarily um anti immigrant or, or, or racist um just because they are coming from working class France which also um voted for Marine Le Pen. I think there's a tendency to make those kinds of those connections and and um I think that could be part of it. Um but uh that was the question from hell because it's a tough one. Um, but I, I, I feel, I, I, I think you're the, the first part of your question is, is 100% um, um, in agreement with you on that. This is, this is a class war. And I think that's why it speaks to people. So, so profoundly in France. I really appreciate you being on the show, Cole. Alex is going to be bugging you in the near future so we can get an update. Thanks again for being on the show. And people should be reading your work at The Nation, at Jacobin, wherever they can find your work, especially at colestangler.com. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. We are guided by a sense of history that human will humans will always progress move forward and advance to the point of someday in the future solving all of society's problems and eventually answering all of life's most pressing and mysterious questions. But what if that faith in progress has been destructive, destroying even civilizations that had progressed far more than our own? We'll be introduced to the depressing truth of faith and progress when we speak in a few minutes with author Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote the article After the Storm, Progress and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity, which appears in The Baffler, number 43. Don't forget, you can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and after 194 respondents so far, 
We have the highest possible rating, 5 out of 5 stars. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on air. That'll make you feel really good about yourself. You hear your name on the air, and then all of a sudden you hear your own thoughts on the air. You, too, can go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us 5 stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, like I said, I'll read yours on air. This week's question from hell is, who will be the last American president? Who will be the last American president? All replies read on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on the word support. Again, the question from hell is, who will be the last American president? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to see if you have won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, our faith in progress is based on racism and a destructive strategy of global dominance. Robot sex and what reveal, what it reveals about human beings and being human. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares his ode to the farmer. We'll also hopefully get to Rotten History, listener feedback, and hopefully tell you what's happening on this week's and next week's Patreon podcast at thisishell.com at Patreon, I'm sorry, at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We'll also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Truly revolting radio, This Is Hell our uniquely European faith in progress is a system of dominance founded in racism and moral superiority that has been destructive to our planet, even destroying civilizations that had actually shown more progress than ours. Here to help us examine our misguided faith in progress, author Ben Ehrenreich wrote the article After the Storm, Progress and the Demanded Quest for Historical Purity, which appears in the Baffler number 43. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ben. Thank you, Chuck. How's it going? Good. Ben is the author of the novels Ether and The Suitors. His latest nonfiction book is 2017's The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich, and you can find out more about Ben at his website, BenEhrenreich.net. What do you mean by, and I hate to do this, I hate to parse a title of somebody's work, but what do you mean by historical purity, and who is seeking this historical purity? Well, um, to, to make a, a really complicated uh, essay, as simple as I can, um, something happened in about the middle of the 18th century, um, and, and two things happened at roughly the same time, more than these two things, and I'm just going to talk about them. Um, and one is that you see the first articulations of what we now understand as the narrative of progress, um, this notion that things are improving, that time is a on a one-way track, um, and it's getting better. Um, and, you know, w- one thing that I note in the, in the piece is that this is always, um, time is always understood also in terms of space, um, in terms of places on the globe. Um, so the, the place of the present, which is also the place of the future, is Europe. Um, this is where things are getting better. And the place of the past 
is for the most part understood as the Americas, which is the sort of the the most sort of savage and barbaric land, you know, peopled by barbarian tribes. Um, so progress at once works in time, and it and it you know traces out this straight arrow from from savagery um, to the heights of European civilization, and it works as a way of placing the people on the globe on this on this hierarchy. Um, and at around the same time, um, there was something else going on, which a, a scholar named Martin Bernal wrote about um, a lot in the 80s and 90s in this sort of titanic three-volume work called Black Athena, which was the kind of ethnic scrubbing, um, we could say ethnic cleansing if we want, of, um, of European um, heritage, of the... Of the um, Heritage of the Renaissance um, and of, of European civilization properly, because you know if if Europe was going to be on top, um, if Europe was going to be the the great inheritor of of all of um, human history, it needed to give itself a heritage, and it needed to give itself a, a very pure lineage, and it did that um, in various ways by denying the African and the Middle Eastern and Mesopotamian. Um, links to what we now understand as classical civilization to Greek and, and Roman culture. Um, you know, during the, during the Renaissance, which is not that much long, uh, not that you know, distant time to this period, uh, people had been very happy to understand, first of all, they didn't understand themselves as the, the greatest civilization on earth. They, under, they, they believed very, you know, very clearly that the greatness was in the past. Um, greatness belonged to the Greeks and to the Egyptians, um, and they had no problem um, like admitting the greatness of of other civilizations that were not European. And this stops um, beginning in the in the mid eighteenth century, so that by the nineteenth century we have this fiction, um, which we still have today, um, and we you know we see it coming out very clearly in, I think, the, the really heightened racial discourse that's come out since Trump's election, um, this fiction that there is this thing called Western civilization, which is this straight line of progress that goes from the Greeks, who just sort of exist suddenly in this wonderful, you know, uh, sort of white statued purity um, of, of reason suddenly landing on the earth, um, through the Romans, um, into Europe, um, and eventually across the Atlantic to the United States. And then we have this great heritage, uh, which is purely European, and everyone else are sort of these, these awful, irrational savages uh, that would still be, you know, kicking around in the dirt if it wasn't for us. And, you know, we see this reflected very clearly in some of Trump's uh, comments about African nations. We see this in, uh, in the comments of his supporters all the time and in the discourses of many of our highly respected public intellectuals. Um, and this is, I think, you know, very clearly a discourse of, of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, that was a fantastic overview. One of the things I was thinking about when reading your article was how we have, uh, since the mid-18th century, we'll get into the writing of uh, Turgot in a little bit that uh, talks about this, but how that kind of thinking about the Western civilization, uh, how that affects our imagination, how it creates a more balkanized world, how us turning our, how uh, Europe, Europe turning its back on past civilizations after revering them for so long, kind of, uh, you know, balkanized the world and made the, the, the Europe in our imagination, Middle East in our imagination, made an Asia in our imagination. None of these things really existed. Was the world more globalized 
far before globalization. It was more globalized before 1750 than it is today because it seems like this reverence for past civilizations would cross borders and not make us as balkanized, would make us more globalized. Were we more of a globalized culture before globalization? I mean, I think the really, you know, going back uh, millions of years, as long as humans have, um, you know, since humans left Africa, humans have been moving constantly. And, and I mean, and I think uh, trade routes go back much farther than we thought they did. Um, global levels of trade. I think, you know, globalization is, a, is, a, is an absolutely ancient phenomenon. Um, I think Europe, certainly, uh, you know, until the, you know, 14th century, certainly, uh, was not a particularly sophisticated or cosmopolitan place. It was an incredibly backward place. You know, if, if at the time, if you wanted to look at where the sort of most exciting civilizations on the on the planet were, you would not look to Europe. Um, you know, you, you would be much more likely to to look to the Indian subcontinent, to, to, to China, to the Americas, to parts of Africa, um, where there were, you know, civilizations that were far more, you know, technologically and intellectually developed than Europeans were. Um, but you know, one of the things that happened, of course, in 1492, is is the Europeans happen across the Americas, and more or less accidentally, uh, not entirely accidentally, they did what they could to help it along. But through, you know, the help of of you know bacteria um, and viruses, uh, wipe out most of the continent and um, do their best to kill the people that disease doesn't take care of, and then bring all of that wealth back. Um, and with that moment, with that, that with that conquest, Europe was able to start telling itself this story about its superiority, uh, and to believe it, um, and to try to figure out ideological ideological ways to account for it, um, you know, narratives that would justify it. Um, and uh, I think you know we're still obviously dealing with this. But in that notion of European superiority in that notion of European progress, if Europeans really believe in that notion of progress, and if they really have that faith in progress, then how is 20th century fascism allowed? How does fascism fit into that notion of faith in progress? You know, I mean, I think fascism, I think if you look at uh, the you know, intellectual roots of European fascism, whether they're, you know, the Italian fascism or, or Nazism, um, they had a profound belief in progress, which is, I think, deeply tied to, um, to the, you know, a lot of the um, 19th and 18th century thinkers that we, that, you know, are still quite accepted today. Um, you know, there, there was a profound and I think even utopian, although we look back on it with horror, um, belief that, uh, human society could be could be perfected, um, and I, I think you know in the this notion of a you know certainly if you look, if you look at the um, at you know if you look at the architecture of fascism, whether it's in in uh, in Germany or in, in Italy, um, it's calling back on these classical roots. Um, you know, Hitler, the the intellectuals around Hitler did everything they could to tell this. To tell a story of a of racial purity that went back for centuries, um, and uh, you know, and, and that very much I think is the same story that we that we see in uh, that I'm describing here um, of all connections to the rest of the world being um, sort of cut off and rejected. 
um, in order to establish this pure lineage. So the sense of European superiority actually, obviously, feeds into the rise of Nazism. You also write that the first explicit articulation, I want to make sure we get to the writing of Turgot, the first explicit articulation of faith and progress is generally agreed to have appeared in a speech delivered in 1750 by the brilliant political economist and Robert-Jacques Turgot, then just 23, it is surely no coincidence that an early evangelist of economic liberty would also be the first to lay out the ideology that would everywhere accompany the spread of capitalism. Then you quote Turgot writing in 1773, all branches of commerce ought to be free, equally free, and entirely free. Can capitalism succeed without faith in progress? How much does capitalism depend on faith in progress to succeed? I, I don't know if capitalism can succeed, and I, I, uh, but um, but I think uh, you know progress has since the beginning uh, beginnings of capitalist um, economy and the politics that associated were associated with that. You know, progress has been the religion that accompanied capitalism everywhere it went. Um, and you know, it's funny. I was thinking when we think about climate change and what we're all looking at right now, because that's sort of what got me thinking about a lot of this stuff is trying to, trying to understand what was happening. Um, that if you accept that climate change is real, um, and if you accept that um, it's caused by human endeavors and by, you know, by industrialization, um, then you can't also really believe that capitalism worked out that well. Um, and you can't believe that technological civilization, as we know, it, industrial civilization worked out that well. And you also can't really believe that any of this story that people have in, in the West have been telling themselves um, for the last 270 odd years um, is an accurate story. Um, because things, you know, may have gotten better for a little while for some some amount of people on the on the globe, but it's actually destroying everything and going to make it impossible for, for human life to to survive here. Um, so that, that's a pretty a pretty serious challenge to to this narrative. What would you? Because I, I have actually heard this on talk radio. Unfortunately, I don't know why I would waste my time listening, but unfortunately, I have heard this said. <laughs> uh, I've often heard people from the far right when people are uh, complaining about uh, the lack of indigenous rights or treatment of. Uh, Native Americans, uh, they will retort with, uh, too bad, we won. What would you say to someone who argues that European civilization must have been and must continue to be more advanced because it is what dominates the areas that were once controlled by indigenous people? Is the United States proof that European culture is and was more advanced than indigenous cultures everywhere? You know, I I think... um... I go back to what I was just saying that I think the 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 one you know very painful bit of truth that we all have to figure out how to reckon with right now is that the way we are living um, is destroying the planet not only for us but for you know generations to come for many many generations to come and for many other species other than, than the human species um, and. So it's kind of hard to say that we won, right? Um, that there were people living on uh, in this hemisphere for millennia before we were who didn't manage to mess it up like we did, um, who managed to live with it, you know, in in some considerably greater level of harmony than we have. Um, and in a very short period of time, we have, uh, you know, destroyed it not only for ourselves, but for, um, you know, 
very likely for centuries to come. Um, I think I think that's pretty hard to rebut unless you take the uh, you know denialist path of saying no climate change isn't real. It's just weird weather sometimes. Is faith in progress? Faith in elites? Do elites need the masses to have faith in progress to remain the elites? Does our belief that we are always moving forward keep them in power? And once we no longer have the belief uh, that we're continually moving forward, that's when the elites lose power. You know, I mean, I think the complicated thing is that, that like, it, it's worked for elites, but it's also been a powerful ideology for people who are not in power. Uh, you know, that for for various uh, you know revolutionary groups over the last you know couple hundred years as well, um, believing that you can that the way things are isn't the way they have to be, believing that we can perfect human society um, through our own actions. Um, has been really powerful people for people who are excluded from power also. Um, so I, I don't, you know, um, the, the last uh, section of the piece was about um, a, a different source for, for the, the one I've been describing for um, the ideology of progress, which is a, an understanding and a belief, which I think is a fairly sort of religious and spiritual belief that like, that, uh, that human beings are, you know, in some ways, um, you know, that we, that God is in all of us, right? Um, and that we can, that we can be what God is. This is this kind of very powerful mystical belief in our own capabilities um, has been something which people have also used to combat elites and to combat injustice and to try to make societies more just. So I, I don't want to simply say that this is a, uh, a racist ideology that we have to be to be done with, because I think it's also been a a very powerful um, source of of you know of change for for the better. And it's something I think if, if we were to get rid of that entirely, this belief that that we can actually affect uh, our own lives and and the way our societies you know are organized in the world, um, we wouldn't have a whole lot of chance of of, of getting through the challenges that we're now facing. You write as an ideology that put European culture at the pinnacle of human history and consigned everyone else to time's lowland wastes. Progress would function at once as an explanation of European dominance and a rationale for the slaughter and pillage on which it depended and continues to depend. How much do you see this idea of progress or faith in progress at work with say, Trump's policy in Venezuela? How do we view the world differently when we see progress as a project of dominance, not of actual progress that benefits anyone by the conquer? You know, like as, as an ideology of, you know, short-sighted elites, um, you know, to think that, that, you know, how many years is it since uh, the toppling of Saddam Hussein? It's, uh, 16 years, right? Um, 16 years after the last time that American elites, you know, with the enthusiastic support of, uh, you know, oil companies and the uh, and arms dealers, um, toppled the government, um, thinking they could just sort of take the oil and make everything, you know, rearrange things as they liked and everything that would be fine. And instead, we've seen, you know, hundreds of thousands of people killed and absolute, you know, absolute disaster. Um, and you have people like John Bolton and the, uh, some of the neocons who've worked their way into um, Trump's administration 
um, who once again have this, um, you know, patently uh, insane belief that they can um, remake the globe according to their desires um, and that it will somehow be in the... I think these people do believe that they are a force for good um, and that uh, and that they're doing the Lord's work in a way. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think it, it requires a, a sort of pseudo-religious faith in order to, to believe that. You write of the political economist, uh, mid-18th century political economist, Turgot. Uh, the first thing he hastened to toss over was the notion that all things are alive and infused with divinity. This idea, then still pervasive in the animistic beliefs of conquered and not yet conquered peoples across the globe, in the folk beliefs of Europe and in the more pantheistic strands of its esoteric theologies was by Turgot's reckoning one of those delusive analogies to which the first men in their immaturity abandoned themselves with so little thought. The task of denuding the natural world of agency and divinity was apparently an important one and could not be neglected. You write for the grand procession of progress to march. The stage had to first be cleared of rivals. All the world must be dead and man alone alive rushing to the glory of his fate. Again, that's all Turgot, I'm sorry. How much did Turgot set the stage for not only European colonialism and institutional racism and slavery and so many other horrible things, but also for rapacious capitalism and a lack of any concern for the environment or how one's own impact on the environment might affect your own quality of life? To what degree did Turgot set in motion the environmental destruction that we're suffering from today. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I think not just to go. I mean, I think, you know, you certainly see this uh, earlier in Descartes and you see it in, in a lot of French Enlightenment thinking and Enlightenment thinking as it spread around um, around Europe, um, was this real disdain um, for the notion that anything, you know, that anything was alive or had consciousness or thought or at all other than humans. Um, the humans alone were possessed with reason. Um, and this is replacing, you know, in Europe, uh, even a, um, you know, deep strands of belief that imagined um, that the divine was alive and everything, you know, that, 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 that the sacred sort of pulsed through the entire, um, the entirety of the, of the universe, um, which is, you know, certainly what a lot of uh, non-European traditions have, have believed as well. And I think if you don't believe that there is anything sacred except for you, if you don't believe there's anything capable of thought or, or consciousness except for you, then it's really easy not only to you know to wipe out people who you regard as savages, but to to rape the earth, you know, to regard the earth as dead. Um, and this works very well um, as an ideology for capitalism, um, as an ideology that. See, looks at looks at things and sees only the way the the wealth that can be extracted from them. You know that looks at uh, that looks at the earth and all of its you know diversity and beauty, and and sees only the you know the what can be mined from it um, and sold. Um, and you know I, I think it, it's with that kind of thinking that we that we start to map out the absolutely extraordinary levels of devastation that you know that have been visited on the planet in the last in the last century and a half. You write of the mid-19th century feeling toward faith and progress. To question faith and progress with any seriousness 
was to marginalize yourself as a crank, a heretic, or a fool. To what extent has that changed from uh, the mid-19th century, mid-18th century even? After all, in the late 1970s, Margaret Thatcher did have Tina. There is no alternative. And many of the pro-financialized neoliberal globalizationists of the mid-1980s, mid-1990s had the same dismissiveness of anyone questioning their faith in their progress in globalization. Are those who question progress still today seen as a crank, a heretic, and a fool and dismissed? Yeah, I think to a large degree it still puts you out there. I mean, I think, you know, certainly even in the 19th century, you know, you had philosophical figures like, like say, Friedrich Nietzsche, um, you know, who were profoundly suspicious of, of this narrative. Um, and certainly after the First World War, um, you had a, an entire generation of people who were disgusted by this narrative um, and, and whose, whose you know, entire intellectual formation came out of a rejection of this narrative. But I think despite that, despite the fact that, you know, that war was followed by another even more destructive war, um, that I think because it's, it's basically the ideology of capitalism it has remained with, uh, you know, with the with the strength of a of, of a religious belief as the sort of core self understanding of our culture um, that things are getting better, that technology and science will bring us there, that human rationality can solve all problems, um, and you know that I think no matter how many you know thinkers have questioned it, no matter how many, how many artists have rejected it, um, still remains. I think quite fundamental to the way most people in the U.S. and Europe, and and I think actually in large parts of the rest of the globe now, um, see the world. Um, and I think it's been it, it's been fundamentally destructive. We've had guests on our show over the last several years who argue that neither the British Empire or any imperial project or the U.S. superpower could have happened without capitalism and the capitalism couldn't have succeeded without colonialism and colonialism could not have succeeded without slavery. Can we blame it all on faith in progress? Did faith in progress cause slavery and all the evils of colonialism as well as the great power of empires over the past 500 years? No, I don't think you know nothing. Nothing's quite that simple. I mean, slavery. You know, there, there's been slavery in human societies for for thousands of years. Um, but I think this belief in progress has accompanied it in a way that you can't really you can't pull it out that one is the cause and the other is the effect. But has accompanied um, capitalism and and capitalism's outreach across the globe, which has been a you know experienced as as colonialism. Um, and you can't really separate them from one another. Um, I mean, I think progress came about as a result of the the conquests, European conquests of of the rest of the planet in the late fifteenth and early sixteenth centuries, um, as a way for Europe to to kind of justify and understand what what it had done and and the wealth that it had, it had gained through these conquests. Um, and it allowed, I think, it became especially powerful in the 19th century, both because it functioned so well alongside of capitalism um, and because it continued to uh, to justify the, you know, genocides that, that went along with colonialism, um, that, you know, as, as European and uh, North American powers, you know, divided the globe up among themselves um, and, you know, really authored, you know, 
horrendous crimes um, pretty much on every other corner of the globe, uh, they needed to still tell themselves that they were superior and virtuous, and they found a way to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, I think, what the ideology of progress has worked for and still works for. Uh, you write that if Europe represented the mature stage of human development, it would need a lineage. And then you talk about this lineage going back to the Greeks, as you mentioned earlier, that this image would not have been recognized by either the Greek contemporaries or by their inhabitants of the time of Greeks being like the epitome of human civilization uh, or of the inhabitants of the continents being mowed under by Western uh, civilization was irrelevant to the larger project of historical re- reclamation. Plato and Aeschylus became the heritage of the English, the Germans, and the far-flung white Americans. Greek joined Latin as an indispensable part of the education of the European elite. Classics emerged as a discipline. Does our study of Greek civilization and the classics, our reverence of them, whether you know we realize it or not, does that reinforce a false European connection to Greece based on ideas that are filled with white and European supremacy. Yeah, absolutely, and I, you know, I think that this, um, you know, it, it was in the late 18th and uh, early 19th century that, that Greek entered the, you know, educated upper class uh, Europeans knew Latin before that, but they started to learn Greek too, um, and to understand Greeks as somehow their ancestors. Um, and this, you know, is one of the things that allowed the English to feel pretty okay about, uh, you know, going to Greece and taking all of the lovely sculptures and whatnot and putting them in the British Museum, right? Because it kind of belonged to them to begin with, right? It was, it was theirs more than the people who lived there and didn't know how to take care of it. Um, but, but absolutely, I think, um, I think it's also important to understand that that the notion we have of who the Greeks were and what they what that means as that they were the uh, you know as they were the sort of the fathers of, of our civilization um, is a is completely distinct from how they understood themselves um, you know the Greeks I think I mentioned earlier uh, were in awe of the Egyptians um, and had no had no problem um, talking about what they had borrowed from them and what they had taken from them um, also had no problem taking uh, talking about what they had taken um, from you know from points further east uh, from from the Phoenicians from from Levantine cultures um, and you know understood themselves in a context which we have pretty much erased when we talk about the Greeks um, I, you know it's kind of like all of those lovely white sculptures um, those white marble sculptures you know used to be painted they used to be very colorful. And now they're all white. Um, and I think a, sort of a similar process has happened where all, all of that color was sort of bleached out so that we could remember them as these, these, these pure white people, you know, sort of just like us. So uh, with this idea of faith and progress and uh, European superiority, you write that it's quite a fantasy, the trafficker in human suffering reborn as enlightened liberator, his transformation gratefully acknowledged by the charges he so recently tormented. The roots of white savior complex run at least two and a quarter centuries deep, and you trace those roots back to this idea of faith and progress. Does faith in progress then and we're touching on this with Venezuela, but does it rationalize things like humanitarian military intervention that we're invading a foreign country for its own good that we know better because we are better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the 
um, in the article was um, the, the sort of second great early text of, of uh, about progress came from the Marquis de Condorcet um, about forty something years after Turgot, um, and um, one of the and, and he's a bit more self-critical in some ways than, than Turgot is. Um, he's willing to talk about some of the, the horrors that Europeans have have authored, such as slavery. Um, but he also, in his in his vision, it's Europeans who will right these wrongs, and they'll do it so that they can guide um, the their victims, um, you know, towards a greater civilization, which is their own civilization. Um, so there's the, there's this absolutely sort of, uh, you know, um, paternalistic notion that it's Europeans that will guide the rest of the world um, to, to greater civilization um, and, you know, take everyone along with us on this wonderful road to progress. Um, and yeah, I think we, we, we still see that absolutely. And the, it was there in the justifications for, you know, the colonial adventures of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and it's there, for instance, in, you know, some of the rhetoric that we would get out of Bush and Rumsfeld uh, in their invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, we we don't really see it from Trump because he's not really articulate enough, I think, to to say these things. But uh, but we see it in some of the, the, the figures in his administration as well. You're right that Condorcet, who you're just mentioning, was a brave man and every bit the liberal hero. He had only the most passionate and eloquent words of condemnation for slavery, the oppression of women, and the brutal exploitation of colonized people. Still, his certitude rested on a deep and unquestioned conviction in the moral superiority of Europe, despite all the dizzying, fast-multiplying evidence to the contrary. To what extent do you believe a feeling of moral superiority can undo all the good one may try to accomplish by being anti-racist, by being feminist, by opposing slavery and exploitation? To what degree does moral superiority, a feeling of moral superiority, actually undermine causes like uh, being in opposition to slavery and exploitation? Well, I'm not sure if it's the the feeling that undermines it, but I, I think that um, you know, so long as you believe uh, in your in your own uh, in your own superiority, you won't see anything. You won't see anything at all except yourself. Um, and and I think that you know, there's a sense in which progress works as this this, this beautiful mirror that Europeans have looked into um, for the last couple hundred years, which which. You know, reflects back a very beautiful, you know, sort of hazy, beautiful, noble uh, image of ourselves. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as long as you're only seeing yourself, um, you are not capable of moral action in any in any real sense. Um, you know, the, the only way to to do right in the world uh, is to see the world, um, to see other people and other beings, you know, in in their suffering and in their strength. Um, and if you if you fail to see that, uh, you can kind of only bumble and only mess things up and only get, sort of only keep making them same mistakes again and again. Just one last question for you, I believe. Let me make sure. Is that correct? No, I got two questions for you. Uh, sorry All about right. that, Ben. Uh, you mentioned, and you started at the beginning of our uh, conversation today, you mentioned the work Black Athena by Martin Bernal and how he cautions of history 
There are no simple origins. You explained that for Bernal, it is never a question of a direct and singular genetic inheritance of roots leading up to a trunk and bifurcating into branches. Human history, he suggested, is more like a river splitting into often to tributaries, merging and diverging again and again, or perhaps like a crowd joining arms and letting go, splitting into smaller groups that at times reach out to clasp hands with one another. How does viewing history as a river rather than having faith in progress change the way we view history? Does viewing history as a river to some extent even potentially de-weaponize a historical uh, view based on faith in progress? Yeah, I, sh- I should hope so. Um, I mean, if you, if you, if you, you know, don't allow yourself to believe that you're in possession of this one lineage, um, but instead understand that there are, you know, infinite, intricate, intersecting lineages everywhere, um, then it's a lot harder to um, to justify uh, the kind of domination that we've been talking about. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, our only hope as humans, you know, at this point is... Um, not just not just not believing that we that we you know as as Europeans or, or you know are um, at the kind of receiving end of this one great tradition um, and to under, I'm sorry I'm, I'm being unclear but not just to understand that this is this is a question of humans being inter, interconnected to one another right the, 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 but this is also a question of all species being to get interconnected to one another and all forms of life. Like this is this is our only hope at this point um, to not see ourselves as this you know exceptional superior creatures, um, but ones that are intricately bound up um, with everything else that's out here, and and there are there and to to try and reject the kind of hierarchical views that we've that we've held on to for so long, which put us on this pinnacle above everything else, um, and to understand that we you know we're 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 all in this together and we all need each other. Um, and, uh, and the, the kind, this, this understanding of ourselves, um, as special and unique and superior, um, has only led and will only lead to our own destruction. We have been speaking with author Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote the article, After the Storm, Progress, and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity, which appears in Baffler number 43. Ben is the author of a couple of novels, Ether and The Suitors. His most recent nonfiction book is 2017's The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich, and you can find out more about Ben at BenEhrenreich.net. We have a direct link for you at our website, thisishell.com. One last question for you, Ben. And and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Do we need to lose faith in progress in order to progress? Do we need to get away from this idea that we are inevitably headed towards a Star Trek utopian future in order for us to actually get to a Star Trek utopian future? Now, that's an easy question. That's not from hell. <laughs> um, um, let me first say that the, uh, the essay that ran in the bathroom, everything I've been talking about now is uh, is part of a book which I've been working on, which uh, hopefully will find its way into the world very soon. So please be on the lookout for that. But, um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think, 
in order to, you know, to reckon with uh, the demands of the future of our of our children, our grandchildren, all the generations we don't know yet, um, to to reckon with the demands of the past that the dead make on us, that our ancestors make on us. Um, you know, we have to reach out to all of them, and that and 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 that means getting rid of this this belief that time is this one-way track that will inevitably lead some of us to perfection. Uh, I mean, shedding that entirely. Um, and I think only by doing that um, is there is there any hope at all um, that we can learn to live with each other and with other species on this planet and, and with the, the planet and, you know, every other speck of dust in the cosmos. Oh, it's ben, when is your book going to be coming out, do you know? Don't know yet. Soon, I hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, when it does, I want to make sure. Who's your publisher? The book's got to get finished first. All right. Okay. I wasn't too sure yeah. if you're working on it. But uh, so, yeah, when as soon as the book comes out, uh, make sure that we'll make sure that we stay in contact with you because I definitely want to have you back on the air. This was uh, not only a fascinating conversation, this is really spectacular writing. There's so much that we didn't, I mean, we've been talking for over 40 minutes and there's so much that we didn't even touch on about this book. Uh, you write about Walter Benjamin and uh, a painting that he had of Paul Clay that has this great interpreta- reinterpretation of history. It really is a fantastic article. So thank you so much for being on our show, and we look forward to having you back on in the near future. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Take care. That, again, is Ben Ehrenreich. You can find all of his work at benehrenreich.net. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Robot sex is far more than a cheap clickbait stunt by a radio show and podcast that is desperately in deep debt. Robot sex actually leads to deep philosophical questions about humanity itself and how humans do things and what our most intimate emotions and actions say about us as humans. There are plenty of questions about sex with robots and we better start considering them now because robot sex is already here. We'll learn what we can about robot sex when we Talk to writer and academic Kate Devlin, author of Turned On, Science, Sex, and Robots. Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash thisishell, I reminded everyone in a hilarious, not-to-be-missed monologue that we're all going to die. In light of recent conversations on This Is Hell, I've been thinking about it a lot. And in our age of climate change, we must all come to terms with our own mortality. So it's hilarious. We also shared our interview from December 2nd, 2006 with Margaret Dooley, the outreach coordinator for the Drug Policy Alliance. Margaret had just written an article called Meth, the Overstated Addiction, which appeared at Alternet. And we shared another talk this week, uh, this one from uh, another drug talk this week, uh, this one from... February 26, 2005, with Dr. David Healy, director of the North Wales Department of Psychological Medicine, who had made claims that Prozac and other drugs like it can be addictive and cause suicidal tendencies in some people. But again, you can only hear those interviews on drugs and my talk about how we're all going to die if you join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank the people who joined us this week. Thanks, special thanks to Alfred, Anna, Marie, Richard, and Borky. 
Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 328 subscribers at our Patreon podcast, and I did some recalculating, and we need a lot more than that to keep this train wreck into oblivion going. And you can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. On next week's Patreon podcast, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know I'll have another Patreon-only monologue, and we will be sharing a classic archived interview or interviews from This Is Hell's past that cannot be currently accessed online. So if you want more This Is Hell in your week, you can find it at patreon.com slash thisishell. And uh, Alex, before we get to what you did on social media this week, didn't you also share a bonus podcast this week? Yeah, for uh, people who subscribe at uh, pledge to the Patreon at any dollar amount, um, every two weeks I put out another podcast, uh, and this one was with your uh, with Kevin Paulson, a hacker, and I think the first person to be uh, canceled off the internet. Yeah, banned back from in, the internet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he got out of prison for hacking. And he gets into his uh, long, very interesting hacking career and uh, his multiple Unsolved Mysteries appearances. Yeah. Um, and life as a fugitive and then prison. And uh, also there's a lot of talk about trying to quit cigarettes and you uh, you shame menthol smokers. Yeah, and uh, he ends up getting busted. I don't want to ruin everything, but let's just say he needed... Uh Condoms and Jack Daniels, and uh, yeah, that'll send you right to jail usually. Also, really funny uh, to hear at the end of the interview Jeff bragging about how easy it is to quit smoking because <laughs> he's still smoking. All right, so Alex, what have you been up to on social media this week? On Facebook, I shared an intercept piece that people really liked called "Prisons Across the U.S. Are Quietly Building Databases of Incarcerated People's Voice Prints." Uh, I'm going to try to book that for next week because that's very interesting and I'm very curious to see what prisons are going to do with incarcerated people's voice prints. Also, a Jacobin piece that at the time I mentioned I hadn't read because I had to shovel my sidewalk and I needed to just get some content up real quick. But the headline was real good and it read, The Democrats are climate deniers. And uh, sorry, but I still haven't actually read that piece, but uh, that title's pretty good, so I think we're going to be fine there. Um, On Twitter... Uh, somebody wrote after the last episode I heard, I'm a bit worried about Chuck. Please send him my well wishes. Sorry, I actually don't have the username on uh, my computer screen right now. Uh, but Chuck is doing fine. He's doing as well as he is going to be uh, doing. So uh, I'll send him your well wishes. And uh, listener Bradsky Nomaths recommended a story just now about a Kurdish Iranian asylum seeker who was detained by the Australian government and wrote a book via a via WhatsApp chapter by chapter, and he just won a major book prize about it, and I looked into having him on the show, but he's still in detention, uh, so I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, and then finally on Instagram, I shared a pic. Uh, I've been mediating uh, feed-off standings between the two feral cats that live right outside our studio, and I shared a very cute pic of uh, Mel skulking uh, on the stairs, staring at me while I was trying to feed the other cat. It's very cute. That does sound very cute. Damn it. I think I might have lost a page to Rotten History. Oh, that really pisses me off. Uh, You want to get to... Uh, Yeah, I got other stuff. Question from Hell? Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, who will be the last American president? Who will be the last American president? I'll reply is right on air right now. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see online at thisishell.com when you click on the word support at the top of the front page of our website. Again, the question from Hell is... Who will be the last 
American president. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you can still have a chance at winning this week's prize of This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see again online at thisishell.com. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because... Oh, it was Dave P. who uh, wished Chuck well after the last episode. Uh, while you were in the bathroom, uh, somebody wrote... I wasn't in the bathroom. Oh, what are you talking uh, about? While you were taking care of a technical problem. Uh, he wrote, after the last episode I heard, I'm a bit worried about Chuck. Please send him my well wishes. And that was Dave P. So thanks, Dave P. I, thanks. I just sent Chuck your uh, well wishes. Okay. Who will be the last American president? Marie Kay says, someone revolutionary who establishes a new form of leadership without a president. A council of all women, for example, to lead the country would be a good start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Josh L. says, hopefully Trump, that people finally <laughs> revolt and build a guillotine. <laughs> Matt M. says, Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> Who said that? was Matt M. Uh, Alexa C. says, number 45 will destroy the world with his stupidity, so he's the winner. <laughs> Wes S. says, the cash me outside girl. I like her. Good for her. Uh, turn her Dr. Phil appearance into a career. Good for her. Uh, Ronaldo M. says, il robo douche. VOG says Omega O'Rourke. <laughs> that was very good. That was VOG. 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 Omega uh, O'Rourke. David G says your mom. Uh, Andrea J says Kanye West. <laughs> Scott S uh, posted a YouTube video of Nixon's uh, Nixon's back HD from Futurama. So it's uh, I think Nixon either in robot form or I can't click on the link right now. It'll mess up my weather report music. Uh, but I'm just, Nixon via Futurama. Amy M says the last real president. Barack Obama. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I just wanted to let That's that. That's re- hilarious. Just wanted to let that resonate. Colin J says Vice President Bob Ross after the untimely death of President Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> Peter W says the one who starts a nuclear war with Russia. Lawrence C says you Chuck, it's going to be you. Don't forget to switch off the lights. Warren L says Barack Obama, obviously. Gorilla G says El Chapo. William, or sorry, Marshall W. says, nutritional supplement antidepressant dispenser number 07442. <laughs> very good, uh, very good, Marshall. Uh, Yah R. says, Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho. Uh, from Idiocracy, Idiocracy I believe. Yeah. Uh, Elliot B. says, Alexa. <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey, are you okay? What did you drop? Uh, you, I just kicked you have over dishes my therm- over there? I oh. Uh, Jeffrey B. says, George Washington's hologram in the spirit of today's reboot nostalgia culture. (laughs) Michael N. says, George Soros. Ariana C. says, Elon Musk's Musk's Roomba. Actually, uh, Jeff C. says, Tom Brady. Michael W. says, Gilbert Gottfried. Nick A. says, a bag of wavy Lay's potato chips. Mark A. says, Con. Shane M. says, Jeff Dorchin in 2024. He changes the State of the Union to the moment of truth, and then we all die in the food riots. Jeremy Jeremy T. says, Bosco the dog. (laughs) Dan B. says, Kanye West. Angus S. says, Ben Shapiro. Fingers crossed emoji. Stephen S. says, Everyone, the last president of the United States, will be elected democratically by every person affected by the actions of the president of the United States. The people will choose to write in everyone. Scott, uh, Scott C. says, Gritty, the Antifa super soldier, will dissolve the stinky constitution in battery acid. Hashtag Gritty 2020. Can we stop having references to Gritty? As no, soon it's as funny. Possible? It's funny. Look at it. Look at those eyes. Look at those eyes spinning around. It's cute. Uh, Rich H. says, Dame E. Or Dame Edna. I don't know why I'm sticking with anonymous naming conventions. Dame Edna. Uh, Adam D. says, <laughs> A gun. <laughs> 
Who said that? Uh, uh, that was Adam D. said a gun. <laughs> Scott M. said Danny DeVito. Pete V. says Rufus T. Firefly. <laughs> Nick P. said King George III. Jacob P. says, is this a trick question? Boss Baby, because I use an image of Boss Baby in this. John M. says, when neo-feudalism neo replaces neoliberalism, a G. I'm going to go with great-grandson, but some pessimists say Jinping himself. Kevin O. says, Damien Thorne with VP Billy Joel. Aaron D. says, Oscar the Grouch until he is exposed as a puppet regime. <laughs> That's a terrible joke, Aaron. Amanda K. says, Chuck Mertz. <laughs> Ein H says, Jeff Bezos's dick pic. So you could say that on the radio. Uh, I think so. Arthur R said, Roger Stone, a.k.a. the Stone Pony. Jeffy D says, animatronic Chuck Norris. Eric T says, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Laddie O says, I asked Siri, and she said it would be Siri. <laughs> Matt M says, definitely a cockroach, yet to be determined if this will be of the two- or six-legged variety. Andrew T says... And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Revelations 13.5. <laughs> if that ain't Trump, I don't know what is. Uh, finally, a couple via Twitter. Candy as a dog wrote, a sock puppet. <laughs> Grizzly Discovery wrote, wild card, Juan Guido. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Who wrote that? Uh, Grizzly Discovery. Uh, Marks and Sparks wrote, Alexa. Free Uni VCU wrote, Jeb. Self-Esteem Works says, a literal corporation... Making marking the end of the state for better or worse, modern Marxism said, if Bernie doesn't run or he gets crippled by the DNC again, Trump wins re-election in 2020, and either he or whoever is president directly after him will be the last. Eh, probably Trump, though. <laughs> ATCD 2186 wrote, Dr. Zayas. Monetary Magic said, the New York Times editorial board. And Sandwich Man said, Barack Obama, 2009 to 2017. Oh, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Um... So my like a response, parody of Amadeus. <laughs> my response to the question from hell, who will be the last American president? I mean, everybody was saying this already. I mean, if he, if he has his way, I'm guessing Donald Trump. But he's so incompetent. I'm going to go with Joe Biden, because if he's elected president, I'm fairly certain everyone's head will simultaneously explode. So hey, I think that will be the end. I just refreshed, got uh, three more. Right, uh, Rock Taster said, Boothead, at least we can eat our ponies. <laughs> Alan G said, Baron Trump III, leader supreme and executioner of the final judgment. And then finally, Rye said, Guy Fieri. I liked Matt M saying that our last president will be Christ. VOG saying Omega O'Rourke is fantastic. Grizzly Discovery saying it's going to be Guido, Juan Guido. That's hilarious. Adam D saying it's going to be a gun. Uh, let's go with Omega O'Rourke. That was such a great answer, and it actually incorporated somebody's name who is being considered as an actual presidential candidate. So, VOG, you win a This Is Hell tote bag, and it will be... Coming in the mail to you very shortly, as soon as you send us your mailing address. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, which happen every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9, 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week while it was 8 below zero Fahrenheit. Rod dropped by, but I was next door turning the water on 
At a closed halal Chinese restaurant so the pipes wouldn't burst. So I missed you, Rod. I apologize. Then I went upstairs getting help installing speakers into my office. So again, apologies, Rod, for not seeing you. Also, thanks to Eric, who dropped by before he heads back to Germany. But again... I was distracted by other listeners like Johnny, who wanted to see how our new studio is coming along, thanks to our Patreon patrons. And I also want to thank Elliot, Alex, Shelley, and Jordan for their moral support on a horribly freezing night. And the weather is expected to be much better this Wednesday when highs will be in the high 30s and uh, there's a very slight chance of precipitation. So I hope you can all join us this Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon for Office Hours. It's time for Nasty, Gnarly, Nauseous, Naughty, Nerdy, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Globby, Gory, Rotten History. In 1850, 169 years ago, after several years of conflict with Native Americans in what is now the state of Utah, three high-ranking members of the Mormon settler community convinced their leader, Brigham Young, to order the extermination of the local Timpanagos tribe because nothing reveals true spirituality true religious spirituality and a close relationship with your creator of all living things like slaughtering people in genocide. Brigham Young, who had 55 wives, because nothing reveals true spirituality, true religious spirituality, and a close relationship with your creator of all living things like banging a lot of wives. Brigham Young has had led the Mormons to the Salt Lake Valley after inheriting the community's leadership from Joseph Smith, founder of the LDS Church, who had been shot to death by an angry mob in Carthage, Illinois, six years earlier. That's LDS as in Latter-day Saints, not LSD as in lysergic acid diethylamide. Although all of LDS history, including an angry mob hunting down and killing the church's founder, Sounds like it was written well on a really bad trip of LSD. Since their arrival at the Salt Lake, the Mormon settlers had come into increasing conflict with the Timpanogos people, mostly over land and livestock, because the Mormons had moved onto the native people's land, claimed it as theirs, and took their livestock, which often causes conflict. All the things that are likely to stir increasing conflict with the already present locals. Matters reached ahead after Brigham Young sent 30 families to colonize, i.e. take away from the current residents, the nearby Utah Valley, and build a fort on what was the Timpanogos traditional fishing ground. When the Timpanogos resentment led to increasing violence, or depending on how you look at it, settler violence against the Timpanogos, including stealing their land livestock, and hunting grounds, Brigham Young's extermination order sent a Mormon militia into what became known as the Battle of at Fort Utah. The Mormons eventually killed about 100 Timpanogos warriors and enslaved several dozen of their families, who were forced to view the severed heads of their dead relatives, reminding us all that the Mormons who founded their faith were all dicks and that Native Americans were regularly enslaved in the U.S., and that continued on into the 20th century. I'm serious. you got to go to our website, thisishell.com. Go back to, I think it's June 2016, and listen to our interview with Andres Resende. 
in his book uh, about his book The Other Slavery and how Native Americans were enslaved for so long in the United States that slavery wasn't something that was only experienced by African Americans. You got to go back and listen to that interview and remind yourself, geez, Mormons were dicks. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Robot Sex and What It Reveals About Human Beings and Being Human. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares his ode to the farmer. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Maybe we'll get into listener feedback. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Robot sex isn't just some horrible ploy of ours to create clickbait. Robot sex is a real thing already happening, and sex with robots leads us to all sorts of questions about human beings and humanity. Here to talk about sex and what that means for, here to talk about robot sex and what that means for human beings and being human, writer and academic Kate Devlin is author of Turned On, Science, Sex, and Robots. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kate. Thank you. Hello. Kate is senior lecturer in the Department of Digital Humanities at King's College in London. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Kate Devlin. That's Dr. Kate Devlin. And you can find out more about Kate at drkatedevlin.co.uk. And more, more, the most important thing you have to know about Kate's biography is that she was probably the first person to say sex robots in the House of Lords in an official capacity, at least. So congratulations for you on that, Kate. Thanks very much. So uh, how much has robot sex already become a science fact? Because you write, perhaps it was the two words together that uh, of robot sex, a compelling mainstay of science fiction now becoming science fact that so many people are maybe picking up your book. So how much has robot sex already became a science fact? Not too much because we're still at the stage where the only sex robots out there, despite what the newspapers would have you believe, the only ones we really have are prototypes. So it's not become mainstream yet. And it may never become mainstream, but it still raises a bunch of very, very interesting questions. You ask of robot sex or how this could possibly be a subject of any scientific merit whatsoever. That's a perfectly valid starting point. But there's a much, much more to a topic that initially seems so trivial. How difficult is it to convince people that the topic of robot sex is not trivial? And why is what what makes robot sex more than a trivial subject. What does robot sex allow us to consider that we may not otherwise consider? Well, initially, when you tell people that that's what you research, they tend to think that's not a real subject. But it's been happening for a while. And back in 2001, um, a Professor uh, Peter Asaro made a documentary about it. And then in 2007, uh, David Levy wrote a book called Love and Sex with Robots. So I'm not the first at all to research this. But it's sort of having a heyday now because it's finally getting to the stage where people are developing them. But I think it tells us a lot about ourselves. It tells us a lot about how we embrace almost literally the technology that is coming into our lives. And, and, you know, we have to reconsider a lot of things. What does that mean if we get these attachments to machines? Is Is it just, is there a sexual thing? Is there something more? Can we form bonds with the machines that are coming into our lives and the robots? And, you know, what does it tell us about how we feel about each other? 
But so far, we have been very, very accepting of every new technology, even when we know those technologies may be undermining our own right to privacy. So isn't an immediate and seamless acceptance of having uh, uh, sex robots, isn't that going to be our inevitable future, that we're just going to accept this just as easily as we accepted smartphones? Well, kind of. There's two approaches. So the first is that we we see something and we want to use it, and we willingly give up control. So you know, we click on the terms and conditions to agree to them in order to get to use something. But there's a sort of broader social change where if we encounter a new technology that seems to be disruptive to our society, we tend to get quite fearful, which is why we have so many worries about automation and the fourth industrial revolution, where the worry is that jobs are going to be replaced by robots. And, I mean, the the fear around there is basically no one really cared when when factories were having robot production lines. But when they come for the middle management jobs and and the white-collar jobs, then people start getting worried. So I think there's a lot of fear in the loss of control. And so people are very worried, you know, what is the most personal thing to you that could be replaced and that could be taken away from you? I think people are quite worried that it might be love. So there's definitely concerns around that. You write, it was never my intention back in 2015 to become an expert voice for such a niche and somewhat risque form of technology like sex robots. However, to absolutely no one's surprise, if you combine the words sex and robots in any form of media, it turns out that people become very animated very quickly. To you, what explains why there's such interest in robot sex? What does an apparent huge interest in robot sex, I guess my more important question, what does that reveal to you about the public and its relationship with sex? There's a very, very long history of this idealization of the artificial partner. You know, the idea that you could create the perfect mate. I think it goes right back to sort of ancient Greek and then, you know, Roman poet Ovid, who wrote the story of Pygmalion, where Pygmalion created a perfect woman for himself. And so this idea, we see it coming up in sci-fi all the time, and people are very excited about the idea that we could have a future where we can control things and we could ha- make a partner to our own specifications. And then if you put sex in the middle of anything, well, you know, there's headlines, it sells stories, and you know, people get... Um, titillated I suppose by it and and excited about the idea of sex and at the same time it's incredibly taboo so you're taking two strands of something that excites people and combining them but uh okay this is just me but uh I would do a horrible job of trying to create my perfect mate I it would it would be awful <laughs> it would be a disaster I that's not how it works when I think of what a perfect mate should be. So what does that reveal to you about our current human condition when we think that we actually can create a perfect mate? Well, I think a lot of people try to often, you know, they fall in love and they try to mold someone into what they really want. So, you know, there's that aspect too. We even do it with humans. But yeah, I think um, what we're seeing with sex robots is this, usually they're made um, by straight men for straight men. So they're, they're they're being prototyped as this very reductive stereotype of a woman, this kind of Barbie-like, pornified, hypersexual doll. Um, and I think that's really limiting because we can do much better than that. And we're, we really, really suck at making human-like robots. We're terrible at it. Um, it's, it's just not something that's easily done. 
and we're not very good at, at accepting them as being human-like either. So I think we need to rethink the whole space altogether and think, how could technology improve our relationships? How could it give us pleasure and intimacy, either you know on our own or with someone else? And and that's the exciting future of sex robots. It's not creating this robot human likeness. It's about looking at how technology can really bring us something more. So how much then, uh, in response to what you were just saying, how much do sex dolls uh, in whatever stage we are at with sex robots, how much do sex dolls reinforce sexism, even violent sexism, if not misogyny? Are these potentially tools that will exacerbate hate? There's a lot of fear around that. I must say that from all the research I did, I did not see any evidence that it could lead to increased sexual violence. Um, So the the closest parallel we have is really the high-end sex doll. So there's a community of people who own high-end sex dolls. They're kind of realistic, human-like mannequins, um, expensive, upwards of $5,000. And people buy them for a number of reasons. Some of them buy them because they want companionship, others because they fetishize them, and others just because they appreciate them as works of art. And um, I think that's really interesting that that you know that it's not there's not this this people wanting to buy them to enact some kind of terrible depravity on them. By and large, the community are incredibly respectful of the dolls that they own and buy, and there's certainly no indication that there, there's anything untoward behind it. You write, my own life among the sex robots began as so many good ideas do in the pub. I was at a European conference on cognition and robotics, and it was full of many different types of researchers working on artificial intelligence. How much can robot sex or the study of robot sex forward studies like cognition with robots, that is the attainment and processing of knowledge? After all, I mean, porn was a significant, very significant part of the internet at the web's beginning, as high as forty percent from nineteen ninety seven to nineteen ninety nine, according to some studies. So, is robot sex a significant part of robotics today, as porn was to the web in the nineteen nineties? It's definitely not, but there's certainly scope for it to be useful in terms of furthering knowledge. So yeah, porn was a massive innovator in tech. It's now moved to a more kind of consumer role. But yeah, I mean, I think when you study robotics and you're looking for ways, particularly of building human-like systems, you have to think about the kind of traits that you put into them. So, you know, there are people who suggest that maybe we should make a robot be able to feel pain. Because if a robot could feel pain and it was doing something that caused damage to itself, then the pain would give it the response to stop, and therefore it would limit any damage to the robot. And likewise, if you could get a robot with a sense of empathy, uh, then perhaps you could put it into a care role. So to have one that could feel desire might be a very interesting thing to do, because it makes us think about how we process these things. And when we are aroused, um, when we feel desire, our brains do these amazing things. I mean, there's all kinds of chemical reactions going on. There's all kinds of neurotransmitters flowing. And I think that's really fascinating because it changes our own cognition. And can we look at that and learn about ourselves and then learn how to model that in a machine? But if we have the kind of sentience, cognition, uh, robots feeling pain, having empathy, there's and I've, every person I talked to about having you on the show, uh, they all said, well, you know what's next? Terminator. 
So wh- <laughs> why is the Terminator not necessarily inevitable? And what does that kind of impact of science fiction on the way that we view robots? How does that affect our way that we view robots in our future? Yeah, science fiction is a lot to answer for because we do have a lot of expectations that come from that. There's a couple of really good research projects out of the UK working exactly on that, um, on the AI narratives that we hear all the time. Um, there is a split in the AI community over whether or not we will ever have machines that can think for themselves. So some people think it's absolutely impossible. Others think it could happen. I kind of sit in the fence. I think, you know, it's, it's not impossible, but I don't think it's very likely. Um, and so, you know, the, this idea that um, some you know, major figures like Elon Musk have, have said, you know, we think that a, evil AI will destroy humankind. I think that's so far off. It's, it's not even on the horizon. And the things we need to worry about in terms of AI now are the everyday things, the gathering of data from people, the processing of that data, the bias that creeps into it. So I think we don't have to worry yet about the, the, the robots uprising robot sentience. Um, we can certainly make machines that respond as if they can feel, um, but we don't have ones that can feel for themselves. Well, why is robot cognition necessary? I know that you talk about this in your book, but uh, for people out there who are thinking, why can't we just have robots that don't have cognition? What is important about giving robots the ability to have cognition? What makes them more effective, better robots? It could be really, really useful. So if we can have a machine that can adapt to its environment, that can react to things, that could be incredibly powerful, perhaps in you know emergency or disaster situations, for example, or even just for carrying out everyday tasks and assistive roles. So, you know, to be able to do that, you need some kind of general reasoning. And we don't have any artificial general intelligence yet. We just have machines, artificial intelligence, that can do very specific tasks um, in a very specific area. So, you know, they might be very good at playing chess or they might be very good at returning images in an image search. But we don't have ones that can react like humans, uh, even though we could find that useful and use that. So it's that reactive reasoning. So to, because uh, I was going to ask you, uh, how much does learning about robots teach us about ourselves? Does ro- ro- Do robots uh, open us up to a completely different understanding of how we do things? So, so is, that, is that the case? Do, do we learn more about us ourselves by studying robots? We absolutely do. Uh, it's very, very interesting. So cognitive science, you know, the, part of the big application for that is robotics. And we don't understand enough about the human brain yet to know about how it works. So we're all the time revising our models of how human cognition works in light of the research that's being done in robotics. And that's just absolutely fascinating. It also makes me think that everything's about sex, but I'll get to that in a a minute. Uh, (laughs) So uh, you write sex is a big part of how humans work. It's why we're all here millions of years down the line. That brain fizzing, feel-good arousal throws common sense out of the window. Again, sure, it might be fun. You said you say it's fun. Sure, it might be fun. But isn't programming something so it accurately refre- reflects an act that throws common sense out the window dangerous? Isn't sex <laughs> too dangerous of a program to give to a robot? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, possibly. Um, I, I don't know. I, mean, I think currently that might be long-term something we need to worry about. Short-term, that's just not going to happen. So the interest, certainly the interest for me now is how we 
how we attach and, and bond and form attachments with machines that aren't capable of doing that. So, you know, can we form a relationship? And I don't mean a human-human relationship. Um, can we form some kind of new, establish some kind of new social interaction between ourselves and machines? Because I think that's the way things are going to go. We're living in a society where robots and artificial intelligence will play an increasing role. And we have to work out what that role is and how we react to it. And, and, and this why I, this conversation on robot sex is really fascinating to me because it brings up so many other issues. That's why when I was reading your book, I was so fascinated about it. You ask if a robot is designed to act in a human-like manner, should it be provided with a sexuality? How much have discussions of robot sex led to discussions on gender identity? Will sex robots reflect whatever the contemporary ideas of gender identity are at the time that they are created, even reinforcing gender identity roles? Will they be our guide to gender identity? Yeah, definitely. There's a, there's definitely an element of that. And um, when we already we have these gender roles in technology, you know, we started off with all those voice assistants, Alexa, Cortana, Siri. They all started off as women's voices. And that was really interesting because a few of the companies said, oh, you know, we didn't really think about that. It wasn't intentional. And you think, yeah, well, there's, there's definitely social roles playing there. So, yeah, I mean, right now, the prototype sex robots that are being made are all sort of unfeasibly large-breasted female forms, quite a reductive stereotype. But they don't have to be, and I think that's very interesting. And certainly one of the people who was trying to develop one of these robots, um, Sergei Santos, who makes the Samantha robot, he was very interested in the idea of reciprocation. So could he make a machine, a robot, that could respond and, you know, basically give a two-way interaction so that you would have to flirt with her, you would have to sort of woo her in order to be able to have a relationship with her. And I find that really, really intriguing. Intriguing, but weird. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you write that, or you ask what role is there for sexually active robots in human health care? Would this be accepted by society? Or even to assist those, with, you know, I would suggest with social anxiety or other related issues, or as the UK has found that a great deal of their society's depression is driven by loneliness, thus leading to the UK, mm-hmm. cre- UK creating a ministry of loneliness. There are myriad issues that ro- robots could help address. Can robots perform the health care needs humans demand? from dealing with a social or psychological issue or those who are suffering from depression or loneliness, uh, could, it, could you address those without considering robots as a possible solution for any patient's issues of a sexual nature? Does sex have to be considered to create effective healthcare-providing robots? Well, no. I mean, you can, you can certainly, there have already been uh, care and companion assistance, pro, you know, prototypes and trials. So, you know, there are already companion robots in place, like Paro the seal, which is a little seal, seal pup that um, squeaks and, and moves around a little bit, wriggles. And, and that's been used in care homes with elderly people to give them the sense of almost like having a pet, so sort of therapeutic sense. Um, and there have been other ones. I mean, there's the Pepper robot who responds um, and reacts in a both to be able to read your facial expressions to allow it to gauge your emotions. So we are definitely, you know, we are seeing a society where there is an acceptance that it is, you know, people are working towards 
robots in a healthcare role. But that's not necessarily the ideal. And, you know, I obviously, the, the number one thing is to have human-human contact. That's not always possible. Um, so we have, a, you know, aging populations that don't have enough people to care for them. And it's not that we want to replace the carers with robots. It's that we want to provide assistance in some way to take the burden of care and, and alleviate it a little. So perhaps carers could have some kind of exoskeleton they could wear or perhaps they could, you know, allow AI to monitor someone in their own home to help them live an independent life. So sex doesn't have to be a part of that, but there's no reason to reject that idea either because we know that people, for example, in old age, um, people are, you know, wanting to have sex in their 80s and 90s. We have survey data that shows this, and there's been a rise of sexually transmitted diseases in care homes as well. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we consider that one of the last great taboos. We don't want to talk about the fact that our parents and grandparents are still sexually active because you know, the idea horrifies us. So I don't think we should rule it out. But I think there's space for that in developing healthcare. You write, since beginning your book, sex robot development had a horrible habit of advancing. First, there were <laughs> yeah. no commercially available sex robots on the horizon. Then suddenly there was a race to bring them to market. Then Abyss Creations unveiled Harmony and Solana for general sale. Then there was talk of the next steps. In the final month of writing, the media was uh, buzzing with tales of how sex could be fairly distributed in society using robots just a few days before submitting your manuscript, Abyss Creations prototype male version of their sex robot Henry made the cover of New York magazine why do you call uh, why do you say this is a horrible habit of advancing why do you call that a horrible <laughs> habit I only call it a horrible habit because trying to keep on track of all the writing that goes with it so um, I should say I'm not I'm not anti-sex robot I'm not even pro-sex robot I sit somewhere in the middle where I can see some benefits but I think we need to go forward with caution um, so yeah my horrible definitely refers to just trying to stay on top of all this information that's flying around because it, it doesn't seem to be you know a month that goes past without another sex robot story in the news and quite often it's blown out of all proportion. You uh, were saying earlier that we're really bad at making realistic sex dolls and sex robots. Do we, to some degree, subconsciously or maybe consciously, not want sex dolls or sex robots to be too realistic? Is there some uncanny valley that we don't want to slide into that is the uncanny valley often seen in animation that depicts someone or something uh, supposedly re representing a human which looks almost but not exactly like real people and causes an uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of eeriness and revulsion in their viewers. How much are today's sex robots and sex dolls and their appearance the result of fears of falling into the uncanny valley? There is. And, you know, the, the sex dolls is a really interesting one. I went to visit um, Abyss Creations, Team at Grill Doll. I went to visit their workshop. I was really, really impressed with the artistry that goes into the dolls that they make. Um, I didn't expect to be. I expected to be, you know, a little bit, a little bit irked, a little bit riled by the objectification of women in the dolls. But actually, I was just really impressed by the skill. Um, and I think the sex doll owners, there are groups of people who really wish that it could be a real person. And that's why Abyss wants to make a robot. They want to give that level of interactivity. But then there are other people, there are other groups out there who fetishize the dolls for being dolls. And they fetishize robots for being robots. And their interest is sexually in the dolls and the robots. Um, so it's a, bit, it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. 
So what explains our lack of imagination when it comes to these sex dolls and sex robots? You write, we could engineer whatever we wanted, five breasts, three penises, 20 arms. So so why don't we? Why don't yeah. we? I, I, I want to know that too. So I've been trying my best to sort of look into this and explore it and see what we can do. So in 2016 and again in 2017, I ran two sex tech hackathons. So a hackathon is just a 24-hour development sprint where you get a group of people together and they work in teams to prototype new technology. And we got together artists, material scientists, developers, sex toy industry experts, all sorts of people. And they spent 24 hours working on new forms of sex technology that didn't focus on the human form. And it was fascinating the kind of things that came out. You know, they were looking at virtual reality. They were looking at wearable things you could put on and they would have sensors on the body to make you feel different things they were looking at soft robotics that curl around parts of your body and squeeze them they were looking at things where you got into a hammock and it hugged you i mean there was all sorts of really cool stuff so i think there's definitely a role for that and if anything i think that is the more likely to be the future of technology for intimacy so not focused on a human figure not focused purely on sex but on something that provides intimacy and comfort and a sense of belonging. You write of robot sex. There are legal and ethical issues that need to be ironed out. Does sex with a robot count as cheating? There's an article from the Sunday Times almost exactly a year ago, which quotes clinical sexologist uh, Dr. Eve Evans, I believe her name was, uh, who says the creation of uh, sex, box, sex, sex bots is artificial technology taken to a new level that terrifies her. She says, though they were created to enhance fantasy, I'm terrified by, by the idea. Here you are with someone so perfect, someone you can program and make them have intimacy with you in the shape that you want. It is terrifying. The story goes on to say, uh, when asked if she, if the sex dolls uh, may be able to curb cheating, Dr. Eve says, absolutely not. She adds, I think finding out that your partner is having sex with the doll more than he or she does with you may even hurt many people. How much is Dr. Evans' opinion the consensus that sex bots, as she calls them, will not stop cheating in relationships and can even make sexual relationships worse? I think it's quite, it's quite a knee-jerk reaction. There's actually plenty of people who own sex dolls who do so and they're in relationships and their partner's perfectly aware of it. Some people even integrate it into their sex lives with their partners. Um, I mean, is it cheating in a relationship if you have sex with a doll or a robot? That entirely depends on your relationship. In the same way that the use, perhaps, of sex toys in your relationship is something that some people want to discuss. So I think that, you know, to say that it's going to be damaging, we don't have long-term evidence of this at all because it's still quite niche. Um, but certainly we have plenty of evidence from sex toys that say that it can actually enhance relationships rather than destroy them. So I, I think that there's a lot of negativity as a knee-jerk reaction. Um, but I genuinely don't believe that the sex robots in this form are going to be much more than a pretty small market. However, they seem kind of inevitable that we're going in that direction so should i be investing in sex robot stock <laughs> you would be you would be hard-pressed to find stock to invest in none of these companies are floating so um it's still really really small there's no corporate backing to this it really is you know a couple of factories in china a couple of workshops in the u.s that are making these and you know is it inevitable maybe 
at this stage, not really, because we're still not, you know, it, it's very slow scale, very small scale, very slow production. Um, it's really, these these sex robots, the only prototype that's really being properly finished is Abyss Creations Harmony. And Harmony is just a sex doll from the neck down. There's no animatronics in the body. It's just um, an, an animatronic face. So Harmony can smile and blink and turn her head slightly and has an AI personality, but there's no movement. It's not how we would view a robot. So we're still a very long way off from, from anything that is what we perceive as being a, a, an android or gynoid. Have conversations around robot sex led to a re-examination or reconsideration of how sex and love compare and contrast on a cognitive level? That is the way we get, acknowledge, and understand it through a, a lens of sex or love. Can we learn about love by studying robotics? I think we can. I think it's really interesting because, you know, there's a number of different approaches to it. And there's some great work out there. The, the research community around this is growing all the time. There was a wonderful academic book that came out last year or the year before last called Robot Sex. And it's a collection of essays by philosophers and lawyers and researchers. It's an academic book. And it explores this in a lot more detail in terms of, you know, the philosophical approach. Can you be in love with this? Can they love you back? Um, so I think there's a lot of thought around it. And it's a really interesting thought experiment. And certainly if we look at, I'm interested in biologically how we react. So, you know, how, what's the psychology behind that? What's the, the, the brain chemistry behind that? And, you know, people around the world can fall in love all the time and not have it reciprocated. You know, the, the person they're in love with might not even know they exist. That doesn't make it any less real a feeling. So I think it's really interesting to learn what this new space is where we see non-humans. And I don't think it's a replacement for human love, but I think it's this new space that we're negotiating that we have to find our way through, that path through when we're talking to technology. Can the philosophical nature of the topic of robot sex, uh, leading to a discussion on what it means to be human, make robot sex for a to be a more difficult conversation? Or are we attracted to the concept of robot sex because it does both? It attracts us with any promise of salaciousness while simultaneously forcing us to consider what it is to be human, that it, that it attracts the more base as well as the more intellectual and philosophical instincts. Yes, I think it does that, and I really welcome that. So initially, I mean, a few years ago, I wrote a, a quite a quick um, sort of think piece um, that went online, and it got it went viral, and it was about you know perhaps we should think in defence of, of of sex machines as I called it. And then when I saw it, you know, it, it was getting lots of hits on on Facebook. Um, and people would automatically start off with, well, this is not a real research topic. This is ridiculous. But within a couple of comments, you immediately saw people going, oh, but what if someone was really lonely and this was the only kind of relationship they could have? Or, you know, what if um, what if this is, you know, something that someone would consider cheating? Or what if they made a childlike version of this robot? Or what if, what if? And these questions, then people began discussing them. And I thought, this is this is exactly what I wanted to see. It was people who were genuinely picking up on the thoughts around it and exploring how they felt about it and how it shaped their own world. And I think that this is a conversation that needs to be had. And when I was reading your book, uh, I had the thought of somebody making uh, a sex doll or robot that resembles a child. And I started thinking mm -hmm. about all of the different questions that we're going to have to consider 
because robot sex technology will likely come at some point. One of the things I'm really concerned about is, for instance, there's these scooters. I don't know if you have these in the UK, but they're dumping these scooters on certain municipalities like San Francisco. Uh, This startup company comes in and they dump hundreds of scooters on the city. They don't ask the city for permission. They're clogging up wheelchair ramps. They're on people's front lawns. They're everywhere. Well, you can use a credit card and you can get that. uh, You can spark the scooter. You can get it to work. And so then you can drive it around wherever. And all of a sudden, these are becoming uh, real issues. And the companies who are putting these in uh, municipalities don't really care because they've already made their millions and millions of dollars. No matter how much they're going to be sued, they're still going to make a profit off of this. And all of a sudden, I started wondering. Is that what our future is? We're going to see sex robots laying around on my front lawn because we haven't <laughs> questioned uh, the future of sex robots. How important is it for us to think about and start questioning the morality and the philosophy of sex robots? Oh, definitely. I think it's really worthwhile. With any form of technology, we should be doing that. But for something where there's sensitive a nature to it, then definitely. Um, and I think that that really is important. And, you know, we're able to have these conversations and um, talk about it now, then that's definitely looking ahead. I mean, there's in the past year or two, there have been talk about these sex robot brothels that are opening up around the world. They tend to be hyped up. Then, you know, the local authorities try and shut them down and then they sort of fade into obscurity again. I think one of the most recent ones was actually in Houston, um, where apparently there was going to be a a sex robot brothel. But essentially, it was just going to be some sex dolls with some voices. That was really all. But I think that's a very interesting thing, because to see the public reaction around that and to look at how the authorities deal with it, they're looking for laws to handle technology that the laws aren't equipped to deal with. So, you know, we have to rethink our legal framework as well. We have to rethink how technology fits, you know, increasingly innovative technology fits into our existing laws. And a lot of the time, the law can't keep up. I've got one last question for you, Kate. We have been speaking with writer and academic Kate Devlin. She is author of Turned On, Sex, Science, and Robots. A few years ago, Kate began to explore the particular ways in which sex, gender, and sexuality might be incorporated into cognitive systems, such as sexual companion robots. Since since then, she has become a driving force in the field of intimacy and technology. You can follow Kate on Twitter at drkatedevlin. And you can find out more about Kate at her website, drkatedevlin.co.uk. One last question for you, Kate, and it is, as we do with all of our guests, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Porn is thankfully now down to being only 10% of the web as opposed to 40% where it was 20 years ago. And the most visited porn website is no longer dominating all the top 10 slots. It's actually the 27th most visited website overall. So porn isn't as significant as it once was online. To what extent does sex motivate all technological progress? How much is sex the driving force in advancing technology from fire to the wheel to movable type to the telegraph to the phone to the automobile to the airplane to the radio to TV to the internet to sex (laughs) robots and everything in between? It has a pretty big influence, I'd say. And even where it's not um, it's not the inspiration, it very quickly gets adopted for that purpose. So, you know, you can kind of think that if it's not war, it's sex usually behind the technological developments. Um, and certainly, you know, porn was a big innovator. Now, it tends to be more of a consumer, but you know, there, there's not as much investment in the technology now because 
upwards like to pretty much where they want to be and they're still raking in the people every day so they don't really need to innovate in that area anymore um but you know definitely from the moment that the electromechanical vibrator was invented in the late 1800s that was not invented with sex in mind at all very very quickly it was adopted as such so even where it's not the intention it very quickly changes so i think yeah there's an underlying current here that you know, mostly what we're interested in at the bottom of all things is, is sex. Well, Kate, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show with us this week. I want to make sure our listeners understand that I am not using this show in any way to get sex at all from anyone, robots or humans. <laughs> so, Kate, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fantastic Hi. book. This is really some. This is exactly what our show is interested in: talking about topics that people don't want to talk about, and then talking about them in ways that they need to be talked about. I really appreciate you being on our show this week. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Take care. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is Hal During the Moment of Truth in a couple of minutes. Jeff Dorchin shares his ode to the farmer. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support when you do we'll send you a gift that you can pick from at our site again this is hell.com and then click on support thanks this week goes to cherish and the tithing like commitment of magnificent me thanks to everyone who supported this is hell this week and in the coming days weeks months and years of the trump administration your support will be needed more than ever This is not Contrarian Radio. This is hell. Uh, Let's see. If you want to hear This is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our content upon your neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, and some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not the Media Empire. Again, if you want to hear us on your local favorite radio station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, or better yet, email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is this is hell. As Alex was saying earlier, the feral cats survived. Unbelievably, the feral cats survived the 18 below high on Wednesday, 27 below low, over 50 hours, I think, of below zero. The feral cats living outside our, our uh, studio both survived, Mel and Rando. So just in case anybody's wondering, I know many of our listeners are very, very concerned. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. Yeah, sorry, this thing's broken. Alarming how charming it is to be a farming. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I've been thinking about farmers and what Donald Dump, that cartoon duck with no pants on, has been doing to our partners in agriculture from the Latin lands to our south. Apparently, it's been made more difficult to come from southern countries to farms here in the U.S., and I've heard that there are U.S. farmers who can't pay enough 
to the workers who are here to maintain a sufficient labor force to do all the picking and such. And it's always puzzled me that growers of food crops always seem to be in need of subsidies, always worried about overhead, always on the verge of ruin, sometimes even when their crops come in abundantly. I know commodity prices can go up and down for a variety of reasons, but that's not what puzzles me. Eating never goes out of style. All organisms must consume something to live, and humans eat just about everything, all the time. Being a farmer should be like being a mortician during a plague, a really going concern. And the world's farmers are really good at what they do. They produce more than enough food for all the people alive today, though that food somehow has a hard time getting to a lot of those people. There's a recent ad from IBM saying that the world's population is going to top 10 million soon, and that food production will have to increase 70% to accommodate them all. Now, 10 million is less than a 50% increase, closer to 25% in the number of people that exist now, and we could feed all the people living now. So I guess IBM's artificial intelligence has decided that the new bunch of people are going to be genetically engineered gluttons or something. What is up your sleeve, IBM? What we really need is not a system that produces more food, but a system that distributes the current amount produced to all currently existing people who would like to eat it. And we don't have that system. Growing more food or more nutritious food isn't going to feed the hungry people if we can't even give them the food that we already have, food we throw away. Or maybe we don't have enough food. Maybe that is why people go hungry, because we don't have enough food. Is that why people go hungry in the U.S.? Because there's enough food here? I don't recall a run on the supermarkets where people with $20 bills burning holes in their pockets showed up demanding hams or cucumbers or microwave burritos and were turned away because the store was all out. I mean, if that did happen, I totally missed it. I'm not saying we can't improve food production. I'm sure we can. We're the human race. We can do anything. It just seems that food is such a necessity, a primary necessity, the primary necessity, that the people who help grow and harvest it should be able to make a decent living doing that. They ought to get a decent share of the most basic wealth they create. And my sense is that when a business is, by all reasonable measure, operating according to best practices and producing and selling a healthy amount and yet can't pay its workers enough for them to even live in the place where they work, Someone is skimming. I mean, if we can't make food production a viable economic endeavor, we really don't have it right. Food is the basic unit of created wealth. There is no other. If the people who contribute to the creation of that wealth have to live substandard existences, none of us deserves any better. What do you do that's more important than making blueberries and oats and broccoli come up out of the inedible dirt? Without wheat, there would have been no Einstein. And these are important, rare people who do this now. They use dirt and water and sunlight and seeds to create food and harvest it and bring it to you. Food that you can put in your mouth and enjoy. Food that allows you to live. And we can't find enough of them anymore. They're rare. Now, if we paid them more, we could attract them. But the farmers would have to raise the prices of food. Or the layers of owners of the food brokering companies would have to skim less, maybe. Maybe the whole system is out of whack. If we pay farm workers what they're worth, then the food is too expensive for us to afford. That's an out-of-whack system, man. We had to pay people inadequately for the system to work. That's a broken system. What do we think is more important than the creators of wealth, of basic wealth, which is food? 
who makes an adequate amount of money for what they do? I don't know. Owners of coffee shop chains, manufacturers of chic electric cars, owners and stockholders of ketchup companies, entertainers, plutocrats, blood diamond dealers. They all have to eat, don't they? It blows my mind how many ways our circumstances demonstrate that our economy is systematized according to destructively illogical priorities. I know life isn't fair, but does it have to be so stupid? And it's just getting stupider and stupider. If it were getting less stupid, at least we could feel like we were getting somewhere. But it's not, and we can't. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, that was some happy, fun time stuff. Thank you, Jeffy. Well, farmers are happy people. <laughs> Farmer in the Dell, Old McDonald, and all that junk. Hey, man, have you, great. have you ever heard of a band called Los Yetis? I have not, but I certainly will look for them now. Uh, I heard them as the background music on some show, and so I really liked it. It sounded like... Uh, uh, Mexican, uh, Latin American, uh, garage rock. And so I looked it up and I was just like, man, this sounds like almost like the cramps or the nomads, that kind of stuff. And then I looked it up and apparently they're from like 1960 to 1964. And in Colombia, there was this huge rock music movement. And wow. it sounds like pre, it sounds like Bill Haley kind of, it sounds like like the earliest stuff from the Beatles, but way, way better. So I was just curious if you'd heard of them. Well, you know what? I, I it's interesting because around the same time there was a bunch. There were a bunch of um, Indonesian rock bands that were playing, and uh, you can tap into them in Spotify. Look at look for Indo rock, and there'll be like playlists that will have these Indonesians. And I'm look for your your Yetis there too. Uh, I, I have a few uh, a, a few. Uh, statements. All right. First of all, all right. Alex is now clear that Zayas is the way you pronounce it. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. He to is. rhyme with Amadeus. Yes, yes, yes. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> yes. Rock me, Dr. Zayas. Omega O'Rourke is great. You made the good choice. <laughs> that was good. Chuck, I don't smoke anymore. I have not smoked for six months, and it was very easy to quit. Oh, really? How did you quit? Yes. I quit uh, on Yom Kippur. I just was fasting, so I thought, I'm going to be miserable all day anyway. I just won't smoke. Do you think people who are not from the tribe would have as much success quitting smoking on Yom Kippur? Uh, you, you know, when you say, you say justice <laughs> a lot. How much does this, how much does this mean? How much does that mean? To what extent? Let me tell you something, Chuck. Statistically, Jews are more successful at everything. <laughs> so I, I, when you when you factor that in, no, of course not. But I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, another thing I would like to say, boothead. Yeah, I didn't get that. Boothead. I know. Uh, right? That's Vermin Vermin Supreme. Yeah. Vermin Supreme. Do you know who he is? No. Vermin Supreme. Vermin Supreme, Chuck, is your mayor. Demand a recount. Vermin Supreme is this bearded character who wears a boot on his head and runs around after every election saying, I'm your president. I'm your mayor. Demand a recount. He's, a, he's an anarchist character. Goofy guy, fun guy. Always at rainbow gatherings and running around Ann Arbor. Also, Chuck, a big question: <laughs> Brigham Young. Brigham Young had all those wives. Yeah. Is that why they call it Brigham? Okay, your turn. Oh my good lord! You know, I believe in 
complete transparency and being completely forthright with all of our listeners. And so I want to have to lose some more weight if that's what you're I, I, I want to be honest. I want to make sure that they know that uh, I'm trying and doing my best to be as quote unquote authentic as possible. And some information was, uh, as the potential of being released about me, and I want to make sure I nip this in the bud before somebody uses it in some sort of extortionist way. Um, this week, I apparently, in the middle of the night, for no reason whatsoever, woke up, sat up, and said, Kitten princesses. Did that get recorded by your smartphone? <laughs> I think it did. So I just wanted to make sure so nobody could use that against me in the future. For some reason, subconsciously, I have uh, kitten princesses on my mind. That is a good, that's a good preemptive uh, move there, Chuck. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Is there anything you, else you'd like to confess to? No, that's it. That was the one thing. I've, I've, oh, really? It's, it. it's been a burden that I've been carrying for a while now, you know? All right, good. You're a, you're a good, you're a, what I call a good faith actor. Thank you. All right, Jeffy, on that beautiful note. Oh, hey, is it cold there? (laughs) Shut up. Stay beautiful. (laughs) You too. Thank you. Uh, So uh, what else was I going to mention? Kitten princesses, got to that. Uh, The feral cat report, uh, Los Yetis. I want to mention, share all that stuff with you. Tomorrow is the soup competition. The Soup-ER Bowl at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from our studio and where we do office hours each and every week. So if you want to, for some reason, put yourself through a Super Bowl, but more importantly, taste about 25 really great soups, drop by Carrie's Lounge tomorrow. They are still taking entries as well. All you have to do is just contact Carrie's and I'm sure they'll help you out. Uh, so that's uh, tomorrow. Let's see. Uh, live from Land Stolen from the Natives, This Is Hell. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget. So we want to make thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to, let's see, Astrid, Jeff with one F, Natan, Julie, Marco, Douglas A, Jesse, Van Monk, Nick, Rob, John T, Gorilla Gramophonics, Tom, Francesco, another Francesco, Michael F, James H, Habitat 2030, Weldon, Pete, Hagel, Twin Ports Democratic Socialists of America, Randell, Michael D, Fergus, Turtle Island Liberation Now, Alice, Rich, Martin, and in Archimedia. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell. However you share the show online, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever, if you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Don't forget Office Hours, Carrie's Lounge, 2251, every Wednesday, 6 to 9 p.m. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell was Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Sorry, Leo, for not getting around to saying hello to you. Uh, Alex, who do we have booked for next week? I think Damaris Hill to talk about her book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. And I'm working on a bunch of other interviews. So that sounds like another happy topic here on This Is Hell.
Where the coolest musicians get their news, this is hell. I want to thank our listeners for being on this week's show, or thank our guests for being on this week's show. Thanks to writer and academic Kate Devlin, author of Turned on Science, Sex and Robots. If you want to hear our discussion about sex robots or any of our discussions, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com in just a little bit. Thanks to author Ben Aaron Reich, who wrote the article, After the Storm, Progress and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity. Thanks to Cole Stangler for returning to This Is Hell and reporting to us live from Paris about the ongoing Yellow Vest movement. And to Dave Buchan, who reported to us, as he always does, from San Juan, Puerto Rico, on the ongoing disaster of bankruptcy that is hitting Puerto Rico far worse, an austerity that's hitting Puerto Rico far worse than any hurricane or hurricanes ever have. Thanks to uh, writer Jacob Hamburger, especially for coming all the way to the studio here. We really appreciate it. He's author of the Point Magazine article, What Was New Atheism, that you can find at thepointmag.com. Our hangover cure this week uh, was uh, have a kid or two. This is not the media. This is hell. I promise next week we'll finally get to listener feedback. I promise. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by following us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or just visiting thisishell.com and sharing our interviews. You can also just sit down in the lotus position, turn your palms towards the sky, focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and say these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.